You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Yo, it's the Samurai Showdown. Samurai Showdown. Samurai Showdown. Yo, DTN, how dare you challenge me? You will die from the tip of my score today. It's born, born, young lord, raise your swords. 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 from the slums of Shaolin. Golden claw talent, twirling one swirl of the fatal swords. Split your island. Ruth, killer bees, stinkers back on the swarm again. The alarm again, shakes direction, weapon deflecting, blows connect like opposite sides of magnets. Still fragments being chipped off with slingers, force last with the force of being crashed in your dad's board. With no airbag, he drove a 99 Jaguar. Quick to pick a lot, lick a shot. Respect the bloods and clips a lot. Plus the golf and watch sagging in the seat. Blasting moon beats. Trying to plot his next hit. He took a drag off the eight elements that compose atmospheric gas. About to let off this sword in full blast. If Chuck is my focus, meditate and position half lotus. Avid sport novas couldn't match his magnum opus. Deluxe stroke. Sun move like a ghost. Struck in an instance. Unnoticed like a lamppost. Radar shot precision. Gunfire explode to his clips alone. It's the sun. Cold. It's born, born, young lord, raise your sword. It's born, born, young lord, raise your sword. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and joining me, of course, my co-host, Mr. Mike White. Call me Mickey Mouse. And joining us this week from Detectives Without Borders is Peter Rezofsky. Call me Daffy Duck. Our November starts this week as we look at crime film, but with a foreign accent this time around. We got a double shot of Hitmen with a side of Japanese philosophy in Jean-Pierre Melville's 1967 film The Samurai, starring Alan Delon in the title role, and Jim Jarmusch's 1999 film Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, starring Forrest Whitaker. Both films feature men who live by a lonely code as they do their job as contract killers. We'll be getting into spoilers on this episode, so if you haven't seen The Samurai or Ghost Dog, uh, you want to check them out, uh, feel free to do so and then come back, because of course, we'll be waiting for you. So how about we start with the trailer for Melville's film, right now.
as you can tell, that trailer really doesn't give us much beyond some lovely music. But Peter, I was going to ask, as our guest, we'll start with you. When was the first time you saw Le Samurai, and what did you think? It was probably sometime between 15 and 25 years ago. I was on a bit of a French noir Jones. I rented the uh, all the Melville uh, films I could get, among others. And I remember the first impression was not the story, but the style, the, the quiet, but not the silence. And I think that will play very much into what I think we'll be talking about a little later. So style rather than story did it for me. And how about you, Mr. White? You know, I really got into Melville probably around 94, 93, something like that. And it was really tough for a while to find his films in the U.S. I could find Bob Flambert and I could find Le Dulo uh, under the title The Finger Man just on VHS, and that was about it. And it wasn't until quite a few years later that I was able to see Le Samurai. And luckily I saw Le Samurai and not The Godson, which is what it was released under when it came to the U.S. in, I want to say, 72. And I couldn't figure out, I'll be totally honest, I couldn't figure out why it was being called The Godson. I mean, here's this 19, what, 67 film from France. It has nothing to do with familial relationships whatsoever. And then it finally dawns on me, oh, it was released in 72 in the U.S. And it was trying to cash in on The Godfather. The, the people that released it were trying to cash in on The Godfather. But luckily, it is... It is not a quick ripoff of The Godfather by any means. Of course, it was you know made years before and really struck me again, kind of like Pete was saying, very, very cool. It's almost black and white while being in color and just that quietness to it. It's uh, very laconic and just uh, really struck me. Of course, I'm a big fan of The Killer, and so it was great to see kind of the seeds of The Killer in this film. As for me, I didn't get a chance to see it until Criterion put it out, probably, what, 10 years back or so. I was taken with just, like you were saying, sort of the minimalism, the quietness, and sort of, uh, I, I guess you would say, Alan Delon's uh, coolness. He just seems to sort of be there, but it's almost like he's checked out to a certain extent, or he's sort of like in his own head so much that sort of the world around him doesn't really matter all that much, even when he's under extreme amounts of pressure. Well, that kind of makes sense because I know that in interviews, there's a famous uh, interview that, uh, or a series of interviews that Melville did with, uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce the gentleman's name, Rui Noriega, I believe it is. And he was saying that he pictured or wrote Jeff as a schizophrenic, Jeff Costello, the character that uh, Elaine Delon is, is playing. That's one of the reasons why he is so cool and detached. I see him more of as like a sociopath than a schizophrenic, but I suppose, you know, I'd have to get my what DMS uh, three out or whatever and, and check to make sure where he fits on the scale. Well, the, the I, I did read about those interviews as well, and I know nothing about schizophrenia, happily. But the wonderful thing is that you can know zero about, about schizophrenia 
and that it works just as well. He could be a sociopath. It never occurred to me that there was anything wrong with him, mm-hmm. because, of course, I have become, as we all have, familiar with the affectless hitman, a familiar character in crime fiction by now. Maybe that was the first example of it. So don't worry if you hear schizophrenia. Don't be intimidated. You can have fun with the movie anyway. So the film opens with a quote from the Bushido talking about the the way the samurai lives and sort of his day-to-day. And what's interesting is this is like the only reference to any sort of Japanese philosophy throughout Which the was- entire film. Which was made up whole cloth by Melville, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So, so it. I, I was expecting uh, it to be a little bit more, and and we'll get into comparisons uh, later on Ghost Dog, where it's like this guy's carrying around a book and he's talking about, you know, this is a code to live by. But no, it's basically just one simple quote, and you know, he's he just appears to be at least using the term the samurai from the reference of you work for the master, you work for the feudal lord, you go and do the war at his behest, and you don't ask questions, you just fulfill the contracts, and just sort of that idea. Or maybe, I only learned from some of the material that Mike sent me that Melville had had made up that quote, and that was, I think, one of three wonderful little moments of humor that surround the film, which I thought would be worth mentioning, because humor is not the first word one associates with that, with French filmmakers in general, uh, or with that movie, but it is there. It is there. And that's what I liked about Melville is even though he would have these very cool films that he did have the ability to mix in the humor there. I mean, it is much more apparent in something like a Bob Flambert, but there are moments inside of that. And there's some just kind of strange moments in Les Samurai. Uh, I, I I know we'll get to some of the interrogation scenes later on and some of those things, the pr- police procedural section of the film, but some of that is, is uh, kind of surrealistic, especially seeing the copies of Jeff Costello throughout the police station. Well, do you remember, that plays in very nicely with the humor, do you remember the scene when uh, Jeff is being there, there's a roundup of characters who supposedly match the, the description, and Jeff and two other guys are being taken for interrogation in a policeman, and you have a, a, a voiceover, in effect, broadcasting the description, young, wearing a hat, a coat, and the camera pans from Jeff to a second suspect, or vice versa. And then the third guy is wearing a hat and a coat, but he's got a big white beard, and he's 80 years old. <laughs> so that is a nice piece of visual humor in there. But it does open in such a visual way. I mean, we get the quote, like I said, on the screen from the Bushido, and we see at the far end of this image, this, this still image of a birdcage, and then there's a bed, and it takes you a couple of seconds to realize there's actually somebody moving, and he's sort of laying on the bed smoking a cigarette, and it's it's not a very, uh, I mean, it's, it's a very sort of a hovel kind of apartment. It's just sort of there. Uh, we don't get the feeling that this guy really even lives there all that much. It just sort of seems to be a, a place to store himself and his bird for a couple of hours each day. That's really all it seems to be. Yeah, something about that shot reminds me of Rear Window, that shot when 
Jimmy Stewart is looking into Raymond Burr's apartment, and he doesn't really know if he's there or not until he sees the glow from the tip of his cigarette. And it just, it could have been a still frame for all we knew until the glow comes up. And that was very much what it reminded me of with, with Jeff laying there smoking in bed. And I wouldn't put it past him because Melville was known to have been a uh, big Hitchcock fan. And then, well, in that opening, it's it, interesting that you say opening shot rather than, than scene because it's a scene, but it is a shot. It is still turning into motion at the same, at, within the same shot it is black and white turning into color within the same shot it's really it's really quite wonderful and then i like how it goes from this real stillness to we get the first tracking shot where he gets up and he goes over and he puts on the the trench coat and the fedora to head out and he always has this um ritual this manner in which he puts the hat on and sort of straightens the brim yeah just beautiful and just it Really, you know, Melville was so great at kind of taking American film noir and, you know, redoing it for a, a French taste. And that whole thing of, you know, the fedora and the trench coat and everything is just such an, uh, like an affect of American gangsters. And he is so careful, Delon is so careful with that, you know, putting on the uniform and everything. And that's just, those are two pieces of the uniform because then later on we get the white gloves that he puts on before every kill. And I just love the ritual that happens with that. And I, I suppose that might play somewhat into a, a mental illness as far as, you know, like an OCD kind of thing. But it, to me, it is more of the samurai type ritual thing that you have to have the proper garb and it has to be in the proper way and follow the the steps that he needs to take in order to fulfill his contract. I, it's just so nice seeing that. And then, and Delon is just so stoic in his role and we haven't even mentioned that i don't think he even talks for like over half an hour i think into this film it's there's very little dialogue overall but our main character doesn't even speak for the longest time yeah the first dialogue comes in at about 10 minutes and it's very minimal all right, 10 minutes, 30 minutes. I, I exaggerated a little, I guess. <laughs> but it is really about the procedure. I mean, it is this ritual. Um, and even to the point where I think for most people, it'd just be like, forget it. That's too exhausting. I'm not going to sit there and do that. For example, after he leaves the apartment, he goes out to get a car. And he's got this thing with stealing cars. Uh, so he just checks the doors, and I guess people don't lock their doors. And he gets in, and he's got this ring of keys that he just puts on the passenger seat next to him and looks forward and basically takes one key off this ring of about, I don't know, looks about 100 keys that all kind of look the same, and then eventually finds one that starts the car. So I think most of us would be, I don't know, maybe a little nervous or kind of like, ah, this thing again, i got to go through 100 different keys. But no, for him, it's just calm, cool. He looks straight ahead, and uh, this is this is the procedure. This is how you get it done. And it's a nice way to build suspense, too, because you have the the key scene repeated twice later in the movie, once with, with Jeff, with Delon's character, and once with the cops. And the second time Delon does it, I kept thinking, you know, is he going to get to the right key before he gets found out? And then I'll, Mike sent me an article, an interview, in which Melville says, I think, I think this is a quote, Ritual 
or schizophrenia is ritual. So it's not one schizophrenia or else the samurai ritual, it's both. And of course, by 1967, Paris is already long, long established as the fashion capital of the world. So it's the the French ritual of getting dressed well. So all these things come together. After he gets the car, he ends up in this garage where he meets, I guess, his contact. This must be the intermediary because we meet him twice in the film. And there he gets like a packet of papers and a gun and all the things that he needs uh, from this guy. And then he starts to plot out, I guess, what we would call uh, the alibi. Uh, he goes to visit his his girlfriend or mistress or fiance or whomever. He goes to visit this card game. And he tells the guys, remember, I'm here from this time to this time. Says the same to her. I'm here from this time to this time. And then he heads to this uh, supper club, this jazz club, which I absolutely love the design in here. And another thing that I love about Melville is the piano player that he has. It, once again, sort of defies your expectation of who you would have as a lead uh, in the film. She is absolutely gorgeous. I have to say, uh, Kathy Rosier, I believe her, her name is, just so pretty. And you can't say African-American, this uh, black lady. And um, just uh, her at the piano. And she is another person who is just so cool in this. I mean, everybody is playing it very low-key. But she is definitely one of those people where you never know what's going through her mind. You would not expect a, you'd expect a woman in a jazz band fronting it to be singing. You wouldn't, at least to American viewers, you would not expect the woman to be playing piano and unfortunately Hammond organ the last time <laughs> she appears, which is a relic from the 60s we could do without, I think. And I love the uh, I love the actual kill scene in here because he goes into the office and the big boss is there and they're face to face and the dialogue is only four lines. Qui êtes-vous? Aucune importance. Que voulez-vous? Vous tuez. Who are you? Doesn't matter. What do you want? To kill you. Bang. And that's it. <laughs> Yeah, and Jeff comes out and runs into Jenny, I mean, to the piano player, and that's like his only mistake, is not killing her. And that's really what sets this whole plot into motion. Well, Rob, I'm glad you mentioned those that four, those four lines. You, you took that out of my mouth. And what I was going to say is, imagine that. Imagine a scene like that, word for word, Oh, in a movie today, you, it would be inconceivable to, to play it straight. It would come across like a Saturday Night Live skit. You know, you could see Belushi doing it or something. But for whatever reason, the time, the people, it, it came off. It was beautiful. It was just at a, a moment in time before you could do something like that without coming off as parody. Well, I think even, you know, a guy who would list Melville as an inspiration, I think if Tarantino wrote that, it would come off as a joke. It would be it would be wacky. Um, I, I totally agree with you that it is as straightforward as, who are you? Well, it doesn't matter. What do you want to kill you? It's just that straightforward. But there's a coldness to it that is almost kind of shocking 
and it makes it even more sinister in a way. Even though there's really nothing sinister about it, it's just a guy going about his job. He just his job just happens to be to kill this guy. But as you were saying, on the way out, he he does come face to face with her, which then leads to the next section where the police put out this uh, bulletin to find suspects. You know, let's round up the usual suspects and put them in the lineup. So he's he's in the lineup, and there's what six people from the club who work there, and they're all sort of varying levels of eh, I'm not sure that's him. Oh no, I'm sure that's him. And we know that they looked at each other for a good. 20 seconds to 30 seconds just before he took off face to face. And it leads to this question of why, why has she said no? Well, I also like the whole idea of memory when it comes to the other people, you know, you know, for sure she knows, but when it comes to the other people, some people are like, yes, for sure. That's him. No, for sure. That's not him. And it's that whole idea of how reliable are people's memories, which we'll get a lot more when we, when we start talking about Rashomon, when we talk about Ghost Dog. But that whole mystery as to why she doesn't recognize him, quote-unquote, um, is uh, really the central, I don't know, it's almost the central MacGuffin to the story. Well, I wonder, in a sense, does it matter? Because one theme that kept running throughout much of the supplementary material that I read is a derisory plot. The plot isn't up to much, but does it matter? So yes, a MacGuffin is it. No, it really doesn't matter, but it does drive it because it. I think because the film is so minimalist and the plot is so minimal that it, it's these little things that are in there that get you to think deeper about what's in the film. Like, for example, uh, when I just rewatched it, because I haven't seen it in, you know, 10, 15 years or whatever, I was thinking to myself, well, maybe there was some sort of bad blood between her and the boss. Maybe the boss screwed her on money. Maybe the boss was sexually harassing her. Maybe the boss was, you know, taking advantage of her in some way. So there's all of these things that I start filling in in my head that I start wondering, what is it, you know, and will we ever really know? And does it matter? And that, uh, I mentioned silence earlier. Another thing that came up quite frequently in the supplementary material was you'd get critics, reviewers who would say uh, long stretches of silence, or eight minutes of silence. And of course, that's wrong. Uh What they really meant was eight minutes of no dialogue. Oh, it because this the absence of dialogue emphasizes the sound all the more, and it makes you it forces concentration on what is going on, not why is this happening, but it forces concentration on the heart of the matter in a wonderful way it i I, I cannot think of two more dissimilar films than Mus samurai and uh and monsieur Hulot's holiday but I mean, in its in its Michel Cati, what fourteen years earlier, and that film has no dialogue, but it's got the sound tells the story, and the sound that forces a concentration 
on the part of the the watcher, the listener, that just would not be there otherwise. It's spellbinding, really. Well, it kind of reminds me a little bit of... um I kind of, and this might be a wrong thing to do, but I kind of put Melville and Leone kind of together when I think of, of filmmakers who can tell a story without dialogue. I mean, when you look at that opening, we talked about uh, Once Upon a Time in the West a few months ago. And when you look at that opening, so much of that without any sort of dialogue and just with the sound effects no music even at the beginning of that film, though you do have a soundtrack of sound effects and you very much get that in the samurai, especially when it comes to the scenes with Jeff's bird and the bird is telling a story kind of, you know, and the bird is, is obviously not, you know, that's not dialogue. It's cheaping, but he, he, that is such a part of the soundscape and of what is happening in, in the film that is just as crucial as any dialogue that you get from any character in the film. Much more subtle than Leone. Then we only have the sound effects just smack you in the head. And I found with this, I didn't have to, it wasn't any kind of a conscious effort. It just, it just pulled me right in. It's just a wonderful thing. I'll have to watch it again just, just for the sound. And at this point, after he's through with the lineup, he goes out and is supposed to meet the guy who's, I guess, another intermediary between him and the people that have contracted him. And he meets this guy in the bridge, which this bridge, for some reason, reminds me of the bridge from Jules and Jim. I don't know if you remember that, where they're running across that bridge for some reason. They are, you know, sort of in this standoff, talking about Leone, <laughs> on one side against each other. And he's like, so you're going to, basically, you're going to pay me. I did the job. He goes, yeah, but you got arrested. And then he tries to shoot him. He tries to kill him to get him out of the way. And this leads to a bit of a chase and all this other stuff that goes on. But even in that, like I said, once again, the affect of, of the character is such that he doesn't even seem to get all that worked up over someone trying to kill him. Well, that scene too marks, Oh, one of the, I told Mike that I would uh, come up with probably more uh, parallels in crime novels where he would come up with parallels from films. When that, that contact after uh, shooting Jeff, he runs down the stairs and he jumps into a, a black limousine that looks like it has posts on the front where you would find flags. So that hints at a, I think, something that Melville wanted to do in the script and changed his mind uh, later, that the Olivier Ray character, the, the big guy, uh, who gets killed near the end, was originally supposed to be the head of French intelligence or the French Secret Service. And he changed that, but that echo of uh, an innocent hitman being hapless in the face of powerful forces that manipulate him. Uh, for crime fiction readers who read Jean-Patrick Bonchette, who read a few decades later the contemporary French crime writer uh, Dominique Manotti, will find something familiar and something uh, to like in the samurai, I think. Well, it would make total sense if that character was the head of the Secret Service just because of the the distrust 
that Melville had for the figures of authority, especially in French, uh, the, the French cabinet and in, in power in France. I mean, his next film was going to, is the army of shadows, which so much speaks to the resistance and people selling each other out. And he was very much into that. I mean, the whole idea of, a person not abiding by a code and selling someone out um, comes into play with the French resistance, but comes into play through that uh, milieu of the, the gangster film. And I think the two really kind of go hand in hand. Some people see army of shadows as being this kind of, you know, strange branching out for uh, this director who really made his bones with a lot of great gangster films, though he directed so many different types of films. I mean, uh, Leon Morin Priest is right in the middle there. He would had a great track record of varying up what he did, but uh, he definitely was exploring similar themes throughout so much of his work. Well, I find it even more interesting, and this is something I only learned recently, that he uh, was uh, going to be more specific about the well, the occupation of this character, but then decided to just make him just the shadowy head of some unknown organization. That resonates even more. It's almost as if to to make him the head of the French intelligence would have been too clumsily literal. Yeah, too on the nose. And Melville was great at not being on the nose, being obscure when it really helped the plot and helped give you a feeling and so much of les samurai is about feelings more than necessarily plot points nothing more than feelings yes <laughs> at the same time he ends up uh getting wounded in this i guess uh shooting and uh, what i really like and this is one of the few scenes that sort of breaks the convention of the film because most of the time uh to this point we've been with him we're always in the scene with him but we get to a point where Melville is cutting between the crooks and the cops and they're almost similar scenes where the gangsters are meeting and they're like, we got to get rid of this guy. Um, this is a liability. And then the cops are like, we got to find out, you know, something isn't right. I, I think this guy did it. We get the feeling that both of them are having similar meetings at the same time about the same thing. And I think that's kind of interesting the way he cuts those two together. Well, and, and Pete mentioned the scene where, we have the cop with that ring of keys breaking into Jeff's apartment in order to bug it. And that, for me, at least at first, I was convinced that that was one of the criminals. When he planted the bug, I was like, well, I'm not really sure if that's something that a criminal would do. That seems something more like a cop would do. And then we don't really get the reveal until after where he goes down and gets into a cop car. And I'm like, okay, for sure, that's the police. But, you know, we have that ring of keys, which is exactly what Jeff was using in the earlier scene and the later scene. And it's like, okay, yeah, just the association of the cops and the criminals, which again is very, you know, you never know who's on what side kind of thing. And that was always the best part of something like Le Dulo, where it's that relationship and that tension between crime and the cops. And in this one, I like that it's neither one is really personified that much. I mean, Jeff is the personification of the hitman, but we don't necessarily have the one guy at the cop station or the one criminal who we really super identify with. Everybody just kind of feels like a cog in a greater set of wheels. 
Mike, I was snookered exactly the same way Good. by that scene. I thought those two, well, and this is, I, I didn't remember the first time I saw the scene, but when I just watched it this week, I thought, oh, those are two guys that they're going to wait for him and they're going to beat the crap out of him when he comes in, right? Because that's the convention. But, but can you say that Melville was subverting a convention? Because was that a convention in 1967? I don't know. But from this point of, from the 21st century point of view, it's a wonderful surprise. And like what he does with the sound, it just compels attention. When you have one's expectations defied like that, you you just you're alert. You you wonder what's going to happen next. I'm glad you got me to watch this thing again, man. <laughs> yeah, after he gets himself patched up, he ends up going back to the club, and this, I believe, is for him to know for sure that she knows that it's him. There's a part of him that just needs to know why she didn't say, "Yeah, of course that's him." Yeah, and I also like that whole like uh the bartender talking about, you know, returning to the scene scene of the crime and everything. I was like, Oh, that that's pretty nice. Yeah, that bartender I Mike, you're probably and both of you are probably more familiar with the supporting cast, but he he just reminds me the bartender character of all those great supporting players you would see in American crime movies of the 30s, 40s, and, and into the 50s. He just looks like a great character actor. I was going to say the same thing about the um, the lead investigator in here. I think that he may have played similar lead investigators in uh, in other French films that I've seen in for some reason, his face looks familiar as if he would have been in at least one of the Bunuel films that I like from this era in the late 60s, early 70s. The other thing, when I consider the uh, the bird, you know, we, we talk about the bird as this thing, um, sort of, a, I guess, maybe even a supporting character in a way, but I was also looking at the bird as a possible existential symbol in that is in a cage, and the old, you know, saying of, you know, singing like a bird when it comes to uh, talking to the police and things like that. And, and maybe foretelling some sort of idea of, well, you know, the bird's already in a cage, already in prison. You could be in a cage pretty soon, too, yourself. Rob, do you know why the cage bird sings? Uh, no, sorry. I, I'm, I'm not Maya Angelou. <laughs> a free bird leaps on the back of the wind. And floats downstream till the currents end. And dips his wings in the orange sun rays. And dare to claim the sky. But a bird that stalks down his narrow cage can seldom see through his bars of rage. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The free bird thinks of another breeze. And the trade winds soft through the sighing trees. And the fat worm's waiting on the dawn-bright lawn, and he names the sky his own. But a cage bird stands on the grave of dreams, and his shadow shouts on a nightmare scream. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown, but longed for still. And his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the caged bird sings of freedom. I, you know, so much of uh, Les Samurai 
was used by uh, Wu in The Killer. But when it comes to the bird in the cage, I mean, so much of that speaks to me as far as what he would then later do in Hard Boiled. And of course, in that one, it was the whole idea of, you know, 1997 coming around and people fleeing the country and this whole idea of the soul being kept in the cage and everything. But yeah, that that's really, every time I saw the bird in the cage, I just kept thinking about that. And then also, the bird, at least to me, seems like he's trying to warn Jeff that somebody was in the apartment and really seems like, you know, I, I kept waiting for the uh, guys who were listening on the bugs to be like, God damn, will this bird ever shut up? <laughs> the other thing where uh, I had talked about before is sort of this similar methodology and at least implied through the cutting uh, between the gangsters and the cops is the scene where the cops show up at his girl's apartment and he starts trying to put the pressure on her to change her alibi. There, there's a line that he has in there. The, the truth is, uh, isn't what you say, it's what I say. And I like that the cop is, is saying that you know he's got a lock on the truth and it's not what other people believe it to be. That, that, that necessarily, to me, sort of negates your um, objectivity as an investigator going back to the bird real quick i think one of the other things that might have been kind of you know spurring the bird on or or why we have this bird is i've always seen a lot of ties between the samurai and this gun for hire and in that there's a lot of bird stuff going on as well especially we've got the lead investigator in that one is his last name is crane and the our main baddie uh quote unquote our hero actually alan ladd is philip raven so i've always wondered if that was kind of a nod from melville back to um the uh, source uh, of uh, this gun for hire but that could just be me reading too much into it which is what i like to do well, of course, in our next movie, we'll have birds out the wazoo. They're just fraught cultural symbols. I was thinking canary in a coal, coal mine. That somehow was the first bird connection that, that came to me when that, that bird kept twittering and twittering. Well, twittering is a good thing now. Uh, <laughs> but th- that, that is what came to me. Now, what I'm hoping we're not going to pass by this film without talking about... Uh, Delos' mastery of the subway and all those scenes in the Paris Metro because that deserves a mention. That is such a great sequence. That whole thing, yeah. I mean, let's let's talk about this because there's two scenes in which the the cops are out there trying to trace him, and he, you know, uh, finds ways to uh, lose their tail as they are both um, on foot and on car at the same time uh, in the street and then, of course, uh, in the tunnels. And the the whole thing with the radio and where he's at and just, uh, yeah, it was, and it was shot so well because I could really tell, you know, I, I got a sense of space as far as where he was and what was happening with this because if it had been in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, it could have just been pure confusion. But fortunately, I really kind of got a grasp as far as where Jeff was and what he was trying to do and how he was outwitting the cops rather than just being, you know, confuso vision. Uh, shot well and edited beautifully. Oh, yes. Too, I think. That, that must have won awards for editing this year, I, I think. I would hope so, yeah. So after he's able to uh, slip them for the second time out of the Metro, he steals another car, goes back to that garage. Uh, they change the plates on the car this time. This is um, where he heads out. 
he's able to figure out who the big boss is that he's got to track down in much the same way as when he killed the guy in the jazz club. Like I said, just sort of matter of fact and not very emotional and straightforward. But isn't it, you mentioned the, the garage and you see that shot, well, the establishing shot in, I guess, both of the times he goes to the garage. It's it's a tumble-down district, I, I guess, on the outskirts of Paris, but it is so beautifully shot. And you could imagine, I could imagine, any number of other directors just holding the shot a little too long, uh, destroying the menace, the tension, by concentrating on the beauty too much. But he's he's got it in perfect balance there, I think. It's beautiful to look at, but you never forget that something bad is happening. And another thing that I noticed in here, and I think I picked up on it on this viewing uh, much more than previous times, is that um, it's not a dark film. I mean, there are elements of shadow here and there, but this is pretty much like all done out in the light, and it's pretty bright. Like some of the, like the jazz club has a lot of white walls, um, the boss's office, things like that. It just seems kind of. Um, pretty well lit not to the level that um when i had talked before about uh like argento's tenebrae which is just so blown out um it's kind of interesting how you can put so much light on something and still make it sinister but it's it almost seems the the same way here to a certain extent it's a lot of daylight it's not everything taking place at night and rainy streets at night kind of thing and i'm guessing that and this is the first time i'm thinking of it that uh, he probably achieves that effect by, let's say, holding shots a little longer than you might ordinarily, another director might, holding those shots of the architecture inside the police headquarters, which is, you know, you wonder, why am I looking at this? Why am I looking at the architecture of this thing? And it just gets you not quite feeling something dark is about to happen, but it just not really suspense either, but just tension, I think, because I'm expected. Yeah, it almost has a little bit of a documentary feel to it at times. I guess it's because it is so matter-of-fact, and at the same time, your little you know, fly-on-the-wall-esque you know, going in here and uh, just experiencing the world somewhat through Jeff's, well, never really through his point of view, but just through his association. But, you know, some of those things, like when Jeff is um, uh, fixing up his arm and the camera just kind of pans over and is shooting him through the windows in his apartment and it's just very distant, you know, we have the windows separating us from Jeff, even though he's in a, a, a just another room. He's not necessarily, you know, outside of the house or we're, we're outside and he's inside, but we do have that distance that emotional distance, that physical different distance, the the you know the the separator in there, and we get that quite a few times in the film where we just feel like we are outside of this world looking in. But it's never done just for effect because you you mentioned that interior window. It also serves as a setup for later when the his would be assassin comes back to his apartment and just punches right through that glass. Yes. You remember that? <laughs> so it's it's a setup too. And that 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 was that's the closest thing to scaring me that happened in the film. I just leaped inwardly, if not outwardly. Well I think that's another nice thing about the kind of slowness, the deliberateness of 
this film is that when there are moments like that, it really does kind of take you by surprise because it is so just, you know, low key. And then anything that upsets that, that kind of even keel really gets noticed. Yes, very much. And you talked about the would be assassin who comes to his apartment to kill him and, and that, and it is this guy who he's able to get the information from in order to track down the big boss. And, Again, that whole stoicism, like even when he's under gunpoint, even when he has to fight this guy, he doesn't really seem to, you know, break a sweat or breathe too heavy. No, not at all. He's the coolest actor who ever lived. Yeah, Delon is, he was perfect for this because he is able to just have a world to his face and just, you never know what's behind him. He's like a Siamese cat. I was going to say, I don't remember which Melville movie it was, but it came with a DVD trailer that was a joint interview with Melville and DeLong. And literally for the whole thing, Melville was talking and DeLong was just reclining on some kind of a sofa, obtrusively smoking, and all just <laughs> with his cigarette smoke floating up into the sky, which was just one of the great interviews I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, this movie would definitely be rated R for smoking these days. <laughs> So following his killing of the big boss, he goes back to the jazz club. And to me, the big tell that the end is near is when he goes to the club and he checks his hat and the girl gives him a uh, check ticket and he leaves it. Mm -hmm. So we know that the ritual's been broken. Um, He's leaving something behind and this may just be the end of it. Yeah, that, that moment is just like, okay, something's happening here. And it's so nice that it's just such a subtle thing, you know, and and that we can clue off because we've seen this scene before that any kind of derivation is just going to really set us on edge. Well, of course, that scene leaves left me with two questions. Why does he leave the hat check ticket and why does it matter? That's the answer. That's not the question. It is. Ah. It left. Yes. All right, I got you now. So in this scene, it's his most sort of bold manner in which he's going to try and kill someone. He's actually going to try and kill, spoilers, the piano player. He's going to shoot the piano player, as it were. Yes, in broad daylight, in the club, and he had been hired to do so. This was another contract he had been given uh, following everything that happened. And... When he does uh, move towards her, that's when he gets gunned down. And then we learn the secret in the end. Gun was empty. That's right. Oh, oh, damn it. You ruined it for me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's quite nice. You don't, there is the talk of you know, there is another contract. But I don't know if it was just me or I wasn't paying attention. But it was not until the moment right of the execution of that contract that I figured out who the intended target was. Yeah. Yeah. This whole, like she, since he screwed up and really he did screw up by not killing her earlier because she was that crucial witness by him, not killing her. It just spins off this whole thing of, she's now the weak link that might send him up and then he would be the weak link that might expose them, you know, the, the 
I don't want to say mafia, but the, the people who are in charge and who are giving him contracts and all this. So it's just like, it's this horrible cycle that he kind of kicked off by being passionate, by having a heart. And that's the one time that he has a heart, it seems like. So I, I really appreciate that there's, there is this level of things going on, this kind of uh, the, the way that the cycle is happening and that he ultimately is the one who pays for his mistake. But then also I'm hoping that she now is seeing that she was under, you know, that she was going to be killed or supposed to be killed, that she might be able to help rat some of this stuff out because it seems like she's a kept woman, not necessarily in the same way that, um, Jeff's girlfriend is a kept woman where she is, it seems like she is a chippy set up in this, you know, older man's apartment and, you know, just, she's like his arm candy kind of thing. But, you know, it seems like the, um, uh, the piano player has this whole background going on as well. And again, I like that we're not just being spoon fed all this stuff. We are very much, very much. I mean, I, I must've mentioned three or four or five instances where, we are not being spoon-fed. I think the only thing we're being spoon-fed in that scene, she's playing piano in every scene. In the scene where she's supposed to get shot, she plays a Hammond organ. So this is going to be a warning to her. Stick to piano. Don't play that other god-awful instrument. You might get killed. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that final shot where they pull back, basically, almost seems like as if the wall is removed behind the bandstand and they continue to pull back and it almost seems like we are looking at a film set as opposed to the club which seems very intentional from knowing what melville was up to it seems like okay yeah it wouldn't surprise me he could almost do that uh, hodorowski you know camera pull back kind of thing just to show that this was all a movie but yeah i can i like that well and what you get also is the you know the three rim shots the boom 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 on the drums and he He said in an interview, yeah, it's very much like a show ending or the ending of a show, of a a film. Yeah, again, kind of a ritualistic thing. I'm not familiar with a, you know, kind of drummer outro type thing, which he seems to be saying that that was his intention. But, you know, I was like, okay, that's kind of another little, you know, nod to the whole idea of ritual. So... The Samurai, do we have anything to add that maybe we haven't talked about so far? I, I Doing the, the research on this film, I came across some funny things. So this movie, would, like I was saying earlier, was originally released in the U.S. in 72. It was released in England in 69. Originally came out in France in 67. So And then it was re-released in its kind of restored form because uh, not only... Did they call it the Godson when it was released in the U.S. the first time around? They also chopped it quite a bit and dubbed it. And I love reading the descriptions of some of the dubbing, just how horrible some of the dubbing was. (laughs) It was hilarious. The way that it worked out, the way that I printed up some of this stuff, there was two reviews. I'm trying to see who the first one is, but there was one where it is talks about how horrible the dubbing is and how it was cut to ribbons. And it was just, you know, basically talking about how shitty the release was. And then on the opposite side was another review from a 
like pretty much like two weeks later kind of thing. And it was by another writer, of course, and it was talking about, well, you know, the, the dubbing's not too bad. It's, it's uh, artfully edited uh, and talking about how it was trimmed down. But, and, and it's in, ah, God, what, where is that phrase? It was like, and artfully so, I must add. And I was just like, wow, you yeah. couldn't get two more different takes on the same cut uh, if you really tried. And I just happened to luck out and get them, you know, one right after another. Well, one of, I don't remember if this is the same review as the second one you mentioned. Maybe it was, but there was one where the, the verdict was, even though it was just mutilated in the editing and badly dubbed, what's good shines through. Yes, even in the butchered form, Le Samurai is a remarkable film, but Melville's masterpiece is is reduced to a pale, ragged shadow of its former self. So that's Tom Milne on June 71, and I don't have a date on this other one, but it's, where, where does it say... Although it returns now in a print that is a bit muddy in places and with 18 minutes shorn, and then in parens it says, rather skillfully, I must say, from its original running time, the dub dialogue hardly matters because there isn't much to be said in a movie that isn't primarily concerned with its central character's solitude. And all the tampering in the world could never disguise the fact that this is a masterpiece, the tragedy of a childlike loner. So yeah, both of them are like, even though it's been, you know, hacked to shit or hacked to a, you know, rather skillfully hacked, it's still a great film, which is hilarious to read. And then, yeah, it came out again in 97 in the restored version for U.S. audiences, because apparently Melville just never really had very much luck when it came to um, American distribution, which is really a shame because he did so many great films. I'm just amazed that we've been doing this show for going on five years now, and this is the first Melville that we've covered because he is definitely one of my top directors, but just have never gotten to him. Yeah, I got to see Army of Shadows at the DIA, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or something when it was restored and shown, and it was amazing. And outside of that, I've seen most of the stuff that Criterion's put out over the years on DVD, and I have to say that Army of Shadows and the Samurai are probably my favorites. I have to say that my favorites are probably the first ones I saw, which were Bob Flambert and Le Dulo. And, um, I, I, well... Yeah, I think I've seen both of those at the DIA or the DFT, but also uh, the, the Red Circle saw that down there a few years ago, and that's another great one. And uh, really, you can't get better than Melville. I think I posted on my Facebook the other day, it's like, I'd rather watch a bad Melville, if such a thing exists, than a, a good film by a lot of other directors, which I know is pretty much an aping of, of what you've said before, Rob, as far as you'd rather see a good whatever, or a bad whatever, rather than a good Michael Bay anytime. Which is a line I stole from um, the, a friend from the Troma days who said that when we were in Cannes. He he said um, he went to go see this Argento film that wasn't very good during the festival, and he said, I'd rather see a bad Dario Argento film than a good Michael Bay film any day. I'd pay to see Melville filming the Manhattan phone book. <laughs> I, I'd love to see Melville's take on Armageddon. I'm just saying. <laughs> I do have to say, though, that um, if you're a fan of Bob Flambert stay away from the good thief that was pretty much an abomination it's a remake of bob the flambert by neil jordan and oh 
I really, I couldn't stand it. Could not stand it. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Professor Tim Palmer, the author of many pieces on Jean-Pierre Melville and French film, after these important messages. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me who you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast known to be the source of life since Eve can be deadly weapons and body counts body count the mathematics of murder and menace the BBNBC podcast discusses lesser known action exploitation and horror cult cinema you can find the show on iTunes Stitcher Smart Radio and SoundCloud by searching for BBNBC podcast you can also listen to each episode directly on the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com got the goddamn message let's go to work Christopher Media, the Weedsman Podcast. Cures rickets, polio, conjunctivitis, AIDS. AIDS. Let's just, let's just go hog wild. Be in the car accident, you just use a little bit and you'll be fine. Yeah, rub it on your car and yourself. <laughs> It'll fix your car and your bones. <laughs> Try this special trick to get out of traffic tickets with Rick Simpson oil. Rub it on the cop. He'll just go away. <laughs> the Weedsman Podcast. Every Friday on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to the Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at the Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com.
Duncan Palmer. I am Professor of Film Studies at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. I am from England originally, but I've been based in the U.S. Uh, since about 1998 now, so I've been over here for a little while. I got my Ph.D. at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and uh, was hired into the then brand-new film department at uh, UNC Wilmington here in 2003, so I've been here ever since. I write and teach and publish in the area of world cinema, specializing in French cinema, and uh, I actually wrote a good chunk of my PhD thesis was actually on uh, Jean-Pierre Melville and 1950s French cinema. So I've had a long-standing relationship with Monsieur Melville, you might say, and uh, The Samurai is obviously uh, something that comes up in my teaching and uh, my viewing quite regularly as well, so I'm happy to have a conversation with you about it today. Excellent. Well, it appears that I've pulled up the right gent to talk about, (laughs) Jean-Pierre Melville. There we go. Well, as for uh, Melville, um, it's my understanding that uh, that is not his real last name, and he took it as an honorary to uh, an American writer. That's right, yes. He was born Jean-Pierre Grumbach um, to a Jewish family, um, a middle-class Jewish family, um, and lived in Paris. And accounts vary about this name. Melville himself was actually rather evasive on the subject. I think he got tired of talking about it in an interview. It was obviously a citation of um, Herman Melville. He often cited, um, um, uh, as it was known in French, uh, uh, Pierre or the Ambiguities as one of his favorite Melville titles, along with things like Moby Dick, of course. But I think it was in part a serious issue of it not being a good era for uh, a very obvious Jewish name, but also the fact that Melville loved the idea, I think, of reinventing himself, taking on in part a very iconic American name, a famous adventure writer, a a sort of mythologizer of the American sensibility, uh, a writer he admired. But he also liked the idea of just starting over from scratch after he had served in uh, in the war, uh, moved back, demobilized, and realized, I think he said in, in a number of interviews, that he felt like he was a new man and couldn't go back to his original name. So took on the name Melville, and also maybe more importantly, set up his production company as uh, Jean-Pierre Melville Production. So you might say right from the start, the name was um, a part, a reflection of his love of America and American culture. Also the fact that he'd taken on a kind of nom de guerre during the, the resistance, and also, finally, that he saw himself now as a kind of one-man epicenter of, of film and cinema and a, a one-man studio, one-man army, you might say. You know, I'm willing to admit that um, I got to know him actually through, um, I guess, the kids who were inspired by him, and that being oh, yeah. the guitar right. and the French New Wave. And, yes. Yeah, and he has um, one of my favorite little bits in, in Breathless, and yes. people haven't seen that, they should definitely check it out. But um, he was sort of, uh, I guess, sort of the uh, the older brother, the elder statesman to these kids, and, you know, let's kind of go back and talk about that for him. So he gets out of the war, the resistance. Uh, how does he end up in the film business? Well, this is the thing. He demobilizes and immediately just decides his entire background has been as an obsessive cinephile, a self-taught filmmaker. He was an insomniac and spent his days when he started work shooting uh, photos of communions. I always tell my students, no matter how you feel you're struggling, the great Anya Fada started out shooting uh, photos of kids sitting on Santa's lap at the uh, Branton department store. Melville started out as a photographer of, uh, of, of um, 
uh, bat mitzvahs and, and the like. So he always thought of himself as a man of media. He spent most of his nights watching films, projecting them himself, going to the Cinematheque, and decided immediately after the war the time was right for him to start his own one-man production company, Melville Productions. The only problem was that the French film industry had, after the war, after the occupation, really started to tighten up and regularize itself, you might say. As in, now, anyone who wanted to enter the profession had to go to film school, IDEC, as it was known. They had to get a formal accreditation. They had to join a trades union. And all of this was just anathema to Melville. He saw himself, um, through most of his career, as a self-described anarchist of sorts. Um, he didn't believe in regulation. He didn't believe in regulations. So you might say he was in a very difficult position. He had no accreditation, no formal footing. All he had was a logo, an ambition, and an enormous ego, and shortly thereafter, a Stetson hat and sunglasses, which he took to wearing. So the first project, you might think from this position, well, tread lightly, but Melville did the exact opposite, which I think shows his personality. The famous first film, which became a really rallying test case for the new waivers who would come after him about 10 or so years later, was a film called Silence the Sea, Le Silence de la Mer. It's a really remarkable story. It's one of, I think, the most important debut films of, of any filmmaker. It's right up there with Citizen Kane, I think. Melville took this story, Silence the Sea, um, which had actually been dropped in over France by the RAF from England um, as a clandestine pirate publication to try and encourage French solidarity in the resistance. It's about a uh, an, an unnamed niece and uh, uncle uh, to whom a German officer, Werner von Ebrenach, is billeted. They have to put him up. So what they do is they resist. They treat him with complete silence. They will not respond to him at all. He must stay there, but they will not uh, acknowledge him in any way until right at the end of the novel. So Melville saw this as, as rightly so, a, a, a famous, iconic work, really, of the resistance. It's It's like... Uh, a filmmaker with no reputation, very few resources, trying to take on the most famous book of the era. It's that brazen. So he actually decided, without the rights, without any business doing this, that he would do an adaptation of this famous resistance parable um, and actually contacted Vercourt. There's a series of letters they wrote, which are a really wonderful exchange, where he basically said to Vercourt, I'm going to go ahead and make an adaptation. Uh, you can't stop me from doing this. But I'll say this, if you and a panel of your peers decide my adaptation is inferior, then I will burn the negative and I will destroy it completely. So a back and forth ensued, and long story short, I think Verkhoff was quite charmed by this young, genuinely, I think, maverick, young upstart. Um, and I think he also saw the opportunities of self-promotion. Verkhoff was quite a, a businessman as well as a, a, a really wonderful artist. So this great underground pirate production ensued in which... Melville worked with a number of uh, collaborators who would stay with him for the rest of his career. Notable is um, Henri Dukai, who shot The Samurai, and I think is one of the great cinematographers in French cinema. He was a photojournalist by trade, so he'd been you know, in the war like Melville himself. So this wonderful underground pirate debut film begins. It takes about two years. Black market film stock was used. Um, Melville and uh, Dekai himself basically took on as many logistical roles as they needed to do. They were in part uh, editor, uh, worked as grip, gaffer, all these kind of job titles that Melville thought, well, do we really need them? Can I just have a really tiny crew so I can keep control? And also, I don't have to pay these people. 
And the film, which in certain ways is quite a minimalist masterpiece, in which you've got two main characters who say almost nothing throughout the entire film, was a tremendous success. Uh, Verkel convened his panel, <laughs> and actually uh, one, one member of the resistance voted against the adaptation. So Verkel booted him out and said, we need a consensus and, and, and a unanimous yes vote here. So made sure that uh, Melville got his yes. And from there, Melville's reputation was made. So you can see why there'd be this resonance 10 or so years later when the new wave generation comes along, right? Here is someone like them, a self-styled maverick, cinephile, self-taught, um, technical training acquired on the job, as it were, making films that are in certain ways quite antisocial. They're often about um, uh, outsiders. They're very uh, cine literate. There's lots of references to other films in them. And it's genuinely a, a, an extraordinary achievement that, that Silence of the Sea was, was made at all. But from this, Melville's reputation was made. But almost straight away, and I think people forget this about the new wave, Melville wanted to make popular films. Silence of the Sea was a, was a reasonable success story. Um, it more than made its minuscule budget back, of course. But Melville very quickly started working uh, with popular genres and, and very much the, the, uh, the policier, so-called, the crime thriller, um, Bob the Gambler, another, I think, cult film in 1955 followed. And you might say that this is a really close template for Goddard to follow with Breathless uh, three and a half years later. Very stylized, very laconic, uh, oozing a love of American crime films and film noir as much as it was French-inspired policier. Um, very idiosyncratic. Bob the Gambler has at one point in its run um, what I can only describe as a hypothetical flash-forward as Bob describes a heist that they haven't yet carried out. Um, so you can see that already there's this template of a micro-budget outsider who is only grudgingly accommodated. They had to sign various releases, and Melville actually had to pay a small token fine to get Silence of the Sea in exhibition. Um, but people started to pay attention. He was a self-styled auteur. Um, it was as if he was... Uh, he, he, postured in interview and was a, was a wonderful self-promoter, but very quickly took on this quality of a, for want of a better word, sensei figure to uh, the youngsters that followed after him, the likes of, of Truffaut, Chabrol, uh, many of whom gave Henri de Caille a lot of work, Chabrol especially, and most of all to Godard, who, as you say, rightly so, gave him this lovely cameo, is uh, Pavelescu, the author, who has one of the best lines in Breathless. He says, his dream in life is to become immortal and then die. Gerard said that he, he essentially wanted Melville to play himself. Melville said, uh, so I did, but with a little extra, extra flair. He described his role as um, both uh, self-effacing and naive, cynical and self-aggrandizing, uh, a fool, but also a kind of brilliant, uh, psychologically insightful artist as well. So you might say that moment, that's when I think Melville is really fixed in the imaginations, both of uh, as a cult filmmaker uh, already by that stage of his career and, and, a, and a hero in the short term for the French New Wave because they, um, they would soon after that, I think, part, part ways, part company. Melville decided the French New Wave was, was having it too easy. And he sort of, a few years later, he was already writing them off saying there are too many grants being given, there are too many, uh, too many easy, easy shortcuts being taken by these young upstarts and they are, they are not really my peers in achievement. And the kids aren't willing to struggle like I did. <laughs> exactly. It's that old narrative again, right? 
Well, speaking of his interest in American film, and you know, you do see that with with the kids that were influenced by him. After, what was it about film noir? What was it about American film that attracted him so much? Well, one thing is he is very much as the the, the, the clue comes from the name. He is an American file. As a young man, um, when he's a, a child, really, he was given a, a, a pate baby projector by his family, who were very encouraging of him, I have to say. And he started renting films. And, and almost right away, a lot of those films were American films. He actually started out describing his love of comedies, which is quite funny, considering what he would eventually go on and make later. There is a sly sense of humor, I think, below the surface in Melville that often gets missed. But he started out with people like Chaplin and Harry Langdon and some of the early comedians in the, in the 20s and 30s, soon gravitating to, to films by um, John Huston was one of his favorites. And I think he just loved this mise-en-scene of boiled down, very stylized, very laconic, male-centered, um, rather peculiar films, I have to say. I just screened um, Out of the Past last week in my uh, class on classical American cinema, and it's such a strange film. And I think this idea of very ritualized behavior, the code of the gangster, the way the private eye or the detective or the, the, the gangster goes about his business was fascinating to Melville. He loved these designs of cities photographed by night, often using day for night photography. Uh, he loved, I think, the work of some of these late 1940s films, particularly Out of the Past being one, The Asphalt Jungle, another, Gun Crazy, This Gun for Hire. He actually, as a young man, created his own taxonomy of the greatest of American directors, his own little pantheon of, of, of iconic American filmmakers. And a lot of them, of course, are crime filmmakers. So I think the other thing to say as well about Melville is he's not entirely unique here. I'm equally... <laughs> obsessed by both French and American film. And there's, there's always this back and forth in conversation between the two cinemas, remakes most obviously, but there's this back and forth train, sometimes of filmmakers themselves crossing the Atlantic and finding work in, in Hollywood and then going back to France later, like Jean Renoir, Julien Duvivier, and a lot of other directors. So now well, there's part of a conversation there, but there's something about how stylized, how sleek, how elegant, how pessimistically brutal, yet quite lyrical, even rather uh, gorgeously photographed these crime films are. And I think he said, this is my way. This is the 1950s now, really starting with Bob the Gamber in 55. This is my way, he thinks, I think, of both reaching a large audience that I could make films. He wanted to make popular films. He didn't want to be some um, art house specialist that hardly anyone watched. Reaching an audience, using genre, working with stars, but yet also exerting my own control, creating something that is recognizably a Melville film. After just a few frames, you recognize his, his designs. So it's a, it's a beautiful compromise, in other words. He loved mass films, genre films, popular studio films. But I think he also liked the idea of being a self-styled auteur, right? His shaping hand is very visible. He liked to make films with as Truffaut would later quip, I think maybe even referencing Melville's early work, films with fingerprints on them. The thing that's interesting when you talk about that transatlantic conversation between uh, American film and, and French film in that way, I've, I've often referenced it in terms of music as the idea of sort of jazz, that it was something right. that was created in the States, right. it got picked up in other places, and then they added to it and, and brought a different conversation. That's right. And you could also say this is another one of, of Melville's citations, his deep love of American jazz music. 
And some of the scenes in Bob the Gambler, again, it's just Bob um, driving around the city, often early in the morning, because that's when Melville would shoot, because he didn't want to get permits and have to pay people for the rights to use Paris locations. So you get a phone call. Daniel Kalshi, the, the, the French character actor, says, you know, Melville phones four in the morning. He's an insomniac, tiny crew on the streets. Off we go. So there's these wonderful scenes of, of Bob, the eponymous kingpin, fading gangster, driving around in his giant American automobile, uh, which was Melville's own, uh, own Cadillac, uh, listening to the armed force network there as the American soldiers still billeted in Paris. And it's jazz. And there's something about this, again, that really appeals to Melville, his sensibility. And um, even, even in his later films, you get quite uh, garish stings, little jazz-like crescendos. Uh, and you can see this flavor in the new wave as well. I just screened Breathless um, just last week, actually, for one of my classes. And the film is really set to jazz music. And you can see that this is Goddard riffing pun intended, I guess, off what Melville does with his soundtracks. And again, another way of just steeping the films, brewing their designs in, in just the flavors of, of American imports. There's a very, I think, intense back and forth between French and American cinema, especially in the 1950s. And um, many people have commented on this, that as, as France modernizes, begins its economic recovery, there is in the culture this love affair with things American. And you might say Melville's maybe a flagship example of that. Cars, dress, hats, music as well, and, and American pop culture. It's, it's all just more ingredients for these uh, highly engaging and quite peculiar creations he starts to make. So by the time we get to The Samurai, this is in the mid to late 60s, sort of um, what sets the stage for him to start building this film and this idea? First of all, Melville is, um, he has his own film studio on the Rue Jenner. This was the last film he'd make um, using that facility. He had been long trying to work with Alain Delon, who was then really a rising star. This late 60s period was when... Um, Delon was at his peak, and he'd never quite found a way to get the right property for him. Uh, he'd worked with you know, Jean-Paul Belmondo, of course, earlier on, um, in a number of really wonderful films like um, Leon Moran Pretra. So, it's, again, it's the commercial side of Melville, right? He wants his films to be underwritten with stars. He talks about this a lot in interviews. He says, stars make my films more effective. And I also think he loved stars because when I cast the likes of Delon or Belmondo, it's as if I don't need to bother with so much plodding or banal exposition. They're just there, iconically. So the samurai is in part designed as a lure for Delon. The famous incident uh, often recounted is um, they'd had this back and forth. They'd had phone conversations. Melville had been essentially courting Delon for a while. Delon was a little evasive. He wanted to make more international films. And then this script comes along of Melville's uh, construction in which they did a quote-unquote read-through. And Delon said to Melville, well, there's been no dialogue at all now for the first 10 minutes or so of what would become the film. And this really appealed to Delon. He's been described uh, by a number of people as a, as a rather glacial actor. He's rather cold or cool or distant or reserved on screen. It's quite unusual uh, male star persona he was crafting. So you might say this is maybe the decisive origin point of, of um, what would become the samurai is building a film around this very glacial actor who wanted to work with uh, a very peculiar in certain ways director and make what you might think of as the ultimate policier 
Um, so Melville finally gets his man, builds the film around him, and you might say distills his previous interest in the policier, pairs it down completely, so that Delon really hardly says anything. This is what's remarkable about, one of the things that's remarkable about the film to me, it's a star vehicle in which your star says hardly anything. His gestures are minimalist, to put it mildly. Little tiny ticks. It's like Delon has inherited all of the leftovers of 20 or 30 glorious years of French-American crime films, and they're all boiled down to little tiny gestures, like running your finger over the brim of your, uh, your gangster hat, right? Uh, before, you, before you leave your apartment, as Delon does on screen. Um, and you might say as well that Melville dies in 1973, and it's a rather untimely death. He dies quite young. There was a catalogue of heart problems and heart illness in his family, and he, he dropped dead um, um, very young. So this is the final phase of, 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 of work for the two of them. They worked together on three films subsequently, but you could say, I suppose, Melville went out on a high, but he saw this as the culmination of all of his work, as one of the most iconic of filmmakers, one of the most generic and classical of filmmakers. He actually turned on the French New Wave and said, you know, you've abandoned classicism. You're making such strange and peculiar and self-reflexive films. You've abandoned things like genre far too hastily. And in a sense, he, he was a throwback director. And, and at this point of his career where he's finding the largest of his audiences working with Delon, this is the peak. I mean, it's, it's the peak of celebrity for Delon and it's the peak of, 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 of reputation and large audiences for Melville as well. So you could say maybe <laughs> boiling all of this down, in certain ways it was a match made in heaven, I think, these two working together. And it opens with that quote from the Bushido and yeah. calling it the samurai and all of that stuff. I mean, he obviously, as you talked about earlier, has this interest in um, process and, and how a, a, an individual or a, a criminal goes through their process. That's right. That's right. The term, actually, funnily enough, Colin MacArthur, who wrote one of the first English language books to actually talk about Melville in any detail in the early 70s, uh, he was a teacher of mine when I was at Warwick University when I was an undergraduate. So I'm grateful to Colin MacArthur, not just for that phrase, the cinema of process, which I think is really key to understanding how Melville's films work. But also, on a personal note, that uh, Colin MacArthur was the man who turned me on to the samurai when it was showing at our art theatre where I worked as a steward. He said, this is the film, Tim, you've got to go and see this film. So, of course, I did. <laughs> was was rather mesmerized by it, especially that peculiar opening you mentioned, um, and my interest in it in it built from there. That quote about the the samurai, Melville admitted and rather bragged actually of having made that quote up. It was a citation that didn't really exist except as Melville wanted to make it exist. And so you might say again, it's Melville's interest in, shall we say boiled down versions of uh, culture, in this case, Japanese culture. I don't think he's particularly interested in the deep-seated code of the samurai, but he loves the iconography, and he loves this idea of, essentially, in the film, Delon, as Jeff Costello is, we would call him a ronin, right, a masterless samurai. He learns midway through the film that he's been betrayed and that a hit has been taken out on him, and he's then in this position of, you might say, committing seppuku, ritual suicide, as, as, as he... Uh, perhaps does um, towards the end of the film. Um, but he loves this idea of the lone wolf uh, who is connected to no one. I love as well in this opening scene that, uh, that Costello, Alain Delon's only companion, is a bullfinch. 
That's, this is the image we see of him in this really dismal, decrepit uh, apartment, lying on a bed, staring into space, smoking. And then we get the caption, the Bushido, the false uh, Book of Bushido caption, no more profound solitude, uh, apparently. So it's a man, it's a bullfinch, and it's a contract killer, we learn later. And that's it. No dialogue, no backstory, no exposition. It's it's almost absurdist in how boiled down it all is. And I think, again, that the sense of wit or rather laconic humor in Melville comes from this. This is his modern-day samurai transposed to this almost unrecognizable, almost black-and-white Paris. But it's also, it gives us a way in, doesn't it? It's, it's Delon, Star, this distillation of this cool, glacial, really glamorous male lead boiled down to just ticks and gestures and hardly any dialogue. And that's all we get. He's a samurai. He's all alone. His only companion is this bizarrely tweeting bullfinch. And he simply goes about his business. And that's, that's the matter of the film. Nothing else beyond that. It's a really rather breathtaking, almost outrageous lead into the film. Almost nothing there at all. It's all just laconic uh, distillations of, of, of echoes of pop culture, right? The American gangster, the Japanese samurai, and Alain Delon, French French, uh, French star put into this maybe his maybe his most perfect star role. In your research, um, where did he kind of come up with this idea, or when did he start writing what would eventually become this film? He said that he. It's funny. There's, there's a script in the uh, the Bifi, the Bibliothèque du Film in Paris, where some of what survived there was a, a fire at the Studio Général of Melville's uh, studio in uh, 1967. Um, the year the samurai came out, so a lot of his materials were lost. But there's a script that actually has a reference to a novel by Jean-Pierre Melville. That one of the one of the treatments of it refers to this having been based on Melville's novel. But we we know of no novel. There was no no book was published of it. He he mentioned um, in interviews about this having been brewing since the early 1960s. Again, his his desire to work with Delon. I think right from the start, he wrote the role and the film that surrounds the role with Delon in mind. He wanted him to be his next leading man. He'd worked with Belmondo. So it was all about, I think, that. And also just, I think the exercise as well was, can I make the ultimate minimalist crime picture? Can I boil down my own interest in that genre to its essence? He'd been making crime films on and off, of course, then for, for more than a decade. So I think it was something he'd been kicking around for a while and almost wanting to, I think, make what would become... I think he saw this film as, as his most... Maybe not personal film, but I think he saw this as, 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 as a very... Um, how shall I put it? A flagship film for him. It's often described as his masterpiece. It arguably is. But I think he saw this as pushing his, his interest, his cinematic techniques, to a kind of limit case. So it was all of these things bubbling and brewing away. Then a gap opens up in Delon's schedule. They finally sit down and talk. They'd had a few projects that they'd almost gotten to make together. And I think that Melville was, was essentially watching what Delon was doing, seeing how his star persona was evolving. This, uh, he's been called a, we all know, femme fatale. He's often been described as, a, as an homme fatale, a fatal man, right? Like the, the opposite of that, in which his, his good looks reveal this rather empty, empty beating heart. And he's, he's almost unknowable in a lot of his 1960s work. So it was, I think, this idea of just perfect coalescence, I suppose. And, and, and this becomes the, the signature work for, for both men, I think. 
You know, over the years, it has grown in terms of its uh, legend and interest uh, from scholars and also from um, film fans alike. But when it first came out, what was the reaction like? It was generally favorable, but rather mixed. There was some backlash. By the mid-60s, Melville was very much an icon in the French film. He'd, he'd since fallen out a little bit with the likes of Godard and Truffaut, and the new wave itself had splintered off into factions and um, and disagreement by the late 60s anyway. But you might see, when I was looking over the press uh, dossiers on, on the samurai, there were some interesting accounts of it. Some critics saw it as a work of genius. There was very much a, a cult of Melville, I think, uh, <laughs> something he'd encouraged in his behavior and his, in his, uh, his celebrity and the way he, he postured again with the Stetson and the sunglasses. And he talks a little like Costello does, or used to talk in these... Uh, these little aphorisms, right, boiled down laconic one-liners sometimes. But people were starting to turn a little bit on Melville. Some of the remarks and reviews were, were, were less friendly. It's been said what's happening in France socially in the late 60s, building up to the, the infamous events of May 1968, is an increasing politicization. There's more of an interest among film critics in more politically engaged films. So some critics... Um, what would be an example of this? There, was, there were a couple of reviews published in uh, Le Nouvel Observateur, for example, one for and one, one against. And some of the charges against the film were, this is no recognizable Paris. This, this isn't a real city. These aren't real people. There's no social reality here at all. And there were some rumblings and discontent about Melville's films have now become so stylized, so ritualistic, that there's no... Uh, <laughs> you, you can see the point they make, I suppose, that these aren't real human beings anymore. And also, as well, this charge that Melville himself would shrug his shoulders and was, was, was not very interested in was, well, what about politics? What about this, this growing radicalism in France? What about the protests which were to erupt a year later? This actually intensified when he started making films like um, The Red Circle and Le Circle Rouge or Army of Shadows. People said, you know, these films are very austere. They're very classical. They start to seem to some, dare I say it, old-fashioned. Uh, Melvin himself, of course, cared nothing about this. He was not interested in uh, criticism. He said in one interview, which a line I always, that always stuck with me, I always lead with this when I say, how do you get to know the personality of this uh, iconic, troublemaking, I think, genuinely maverick filmmaker? He said uh, in one interview, if by any chance your opinion should diverge from mine, well, it is I who would be right. I'm, I'm quoting him word for word there, because that line I, I came across this when I was researching the dissertation. I thought, there we go. One sentence, that's Melville. So again, there was some dissent, but others saw this as, uh, as being his masterpiece. I think among, among Congressantian and more cinephile filmmakers, there was a sense that The Samurai was, was pure, quintessential. <laughs> Melville taken to, to its extension, a kind of logical conclusion of a lot of his interest in the preceding 20 years of filmmaking. I wanted to ask you, because uh, we're comparing the two films on the show, and 33 years later, Jim Jarmusch comes out with Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, which a lot of people see as a quotation of, of the Melville film, and wanted to see what you think of that film in comparison. Absolutely. It's, it's a lovely homage, I think, um, Ghost Dog. I haven't seen it for a little while, but... Uh, uh, it's funny that there's the reference, the, the, the sort of the, the quasi-joke, very understated Jim Jarmusch joke about uh, the ghost dog has the electronic key to break into cars, which I think is a lovely little tip of the tip of the hat of the 
the, the scenes of Costello, Jeff, in, in um, The Samurai with this wonderful set of skeleton keys he has. It must be a hundred or more keys that he meticulously tries uh, when, he's hot, when he's trying to steal cars. So it, uh, Jarmusch is funny because a lot, of, a lot of people who come to Melville, as you were describing a second ago, they come to him through these second or third or fourth generation homages paid to him. He's, I think Melville is a filmmaker's filmmaker. Um, lots of people. John Woo is another famous one. Walter Hill, his film uh, The Driver, is, is, is sort of built around, I think, after echoes of, of Le Samurai. Some people have said Drive, the Ryan Gosling uh, vehicle, is also quite uh, derived from him. Um, what's another one? The American, the Anton Corbine film with George Clooney. He's just, I think, Costello, the trench coat, the hat, the stare the doleful expression, the ritualistic behavior. This just has such a resonance and appeal, especially for male directors. People like Jarmusch, I mean, there's some similarity in his position, right? He's, he's well-loved, he's a cult director, but he's not, he's not a mainstream director by any stretch of the imagination. There's this, I think they sense of affinity. People think of themselves as, as having a sensibility in common with, with Melville. There's, there's such appeal to it, right? Yeah, and I think um, you know when you talk about all of those uh, other characters, those other films, there is this sort of, I guess, um, empty vessel idea that when you're watching yeah. it, you can sort of place your thoughts into the character as opposed to the character telling you everything about themselves. Right, exactly. It's, it's just a fascinating idea. It goes back to the opening quotation, the Book of Bushido. And people have tried to interpret Melville. They've tried to offer accounts of his representation of gender, Melville men and Melville women. But sometimes I think that's rather missing the point that he just does this. It's like a, a boiled down, almost absurdist. It's like they're just blank canvases, right? You watch Delon's performance in the film, and he gives us almost nothing. There are tiny, tiny little deviations, like when he's wounded and pours, I think it's alcohol over his, his wound, and there's a tiny little flinch right? Or after he's evaded the prison police through the metro, one of these long, lovely cinema of process set pieces that Melville grew to love, like the 27-minute the high scene in, in uh, the Red Circle, the Cirque Rouge. And uh, DeLong gives a couple of pants. He just, he's slightly out of breath, slightly phased, right? Nearly caught, but of course, managed to, manages to evade the gendarmes there. So it really is, it's a kind of minimalist exercise. Melville loves this notion, I think, of pursuing a parameter and taking it as far as it can go. What if, I have a, what if I have a character who doesn't say a word, who rejects any attempts to humanize him, whose most intimate relationship is with a bullfinch? And again, at times, it, it flirts with absurdity. It really does. And um, this boiled down, almost zero representation style he has, um, you might say we get little tells, don't we? It's like watching a game of poker. Right? How do you disclose something? How do you figure out that Jeff is ruffled? Well, he cocks an eyebrow when the police have bugged his apartment because what does he do? And it's a great Melville, <laughs> the samurai moment. Uh, Costello Delon leans in closer and notices that his pet bullfinch is slightly agitated, that she shed feathers. From this, he gleans, someone's been in my apartment, the police have bugged the place, has to turn the place upside down to figure out where this bug has been planted. So there's, there's, a, there's a sort of pleasure to this, I think, among viewers. I show this as a kind of hypnotic quality to these films. Um, as if, some, you know, Hitchcock said, 
bad cinema is photographs of people talking. And I love that quote too, bad cinema is photographs of people talking. And so much film made is just so nervous. They talk us to death. They give us endless backstory, coils of, 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 of motivation pile up on the floor. We all, we all know these films. They're, they're two a penny, so common. And Melville is just so unstintingly the opposite of this. It's, you might call it brave filmmaking. You might call it almost to the point of self-parody at times, but it's, I, I, I don't want to disclose these things. I don't want to give easy backstory. I don't want to hold your hand. I don't want to make my characters lovable. I don't want them to be wrong so we all root for them. It's just absolute stasis, right? All these tiny little moments where uh, Jeff discloses investment in something, whether it's just a little bird flapping in a cage, right? So there's something hypnotic about this. It's just like watching, it's like setting two people on a course, a killer, Costello, an inspector who doesn't have a name, he's just the inspector, uh, and, and putting them on a course. We've seen these, these characters countless times in genre. Well, let's push that down, let's take it to its limits, right? No backstory, no domesticity, nothing at all, no personality really at all. Um, and just and just taking that as far as it can go. It, it's it's a rather bravura exercise, I think. You know, just sort of talking about his characters in that way. What do you find when you look at the scope of his films? Are there any themes or reoccurring um, ideas that he keeps coming back to or trying to figure out or work through? One of the crucial things about him is is for Melville, you might say, the war never ended, right? That he is a decorated um, veteran. That this is his sounding point. It's how he reinvents himself as a veteran with a new name and a new identity and, and, and a one-man film industry. Uh, the theme of the war and its aftermath is, is crucial to the film I was describing, Silence of the Sea. It comes back again and again in films like Army of Shadows. But his characters and his, his protagonists are oftentimes weirdly out of time. They don't really inhabit any recognizable situations or milieu. The Paris of his films is... It's so pared down, it's almost vestigial. There's almost nothing there. People with jobs, families, children, they're all almost completely absent. You might say Melville's characters are, are oftentimes nocturnal. They don't really live by anyone's codes or rules except their own. Hence, I think the appeal to, to um, idiosyncratic filmmakers and, and uh, cult audiences as well. Um, he loves the idea of what defines people is their professionalism. He loves this idea, I think, of grace under pressure or even just stability and calm assurance, being unflappable under pressure. Sometimes you might say his cops and his robbers, his crooks and his gangsters, and Delon changes side. He's a gangster, well, a nominal gangster, a contract killer in The Samurai, and then is a, is a police inspector in um, Unflick, a cop, also known as Dirty Money, his last film. In a sense, it doesn't really matter what side you're on. What governs you is that you are loyal to the gang around you when you aren't, when someone breaks that code, often a masculine code, disaster ensues, as in Bob the Gambler, right? You're only as good as the weakest link. Um, these are highly ritualized male characters. Women are present at the fringes or, or not at all. It's a remarkably male-centered vision he has of the world. And it is about codes of loyalty. It's like Bob the Gambler when... Uh, Bob, our, our lead, our veteran, washed-up kingpin, and his best friend is another inspector. And the banter between the two men is, is one of the mainstays of the film. It's about male friendship, I think, oftentimes. It's about people who have shared pasts, um, looking out for each other. There's a, there's a rather touching sense of 
community and, and older men mentoring younger men sometimes, although not in the samurai. So it's, it's a really stylized, rather stark world uh, on, on screen. In some ways, it's, it's quite cold, it's quite ascetic, it's quite minimalist. But there is a sense of, there is a warmth to Melville as well. He does see people as, it's about groups, often antisocial groups, or people who are awake when everyone else is asleep, who are nocturnal, like Jeff in The Samurai. It's about people who operate outside of the law or who are, even, even, the, even the police, they don't really have families. They're, they're alone. They are living by themselves in their own little denizens, their own little offices, their own little worlds, really apart from the heartbeat and pulse of, of Paris. There's one scene in um, uh, Le Cercle Rouge where the inspector goes back to his house. There's a, just a break in the case where he's investigating and trying to find Delon. And he goes back to his apartment and puts down food for his cats, uh, the three cats that were Melville's own cats. Melville was a cat lover all his life. And it's like, there's Melville, right? This is boiling down what a personality is. It's a man who does his job, who is given a task, who pursues it relentlessly to the end. And the one little break where we see personality, with Jeff in a samurai, it's his bullfinch, his bird, his pet. And with, uh, in the Cirque Rouge, it's feeding the cats, Melville's own cats. So it's, it's, it's a code of contact with these little tiny moments where you might see the humanity behind the mask. But it's, it's a remarkably consistent worldview he has on screen. He's, he's such a self-evident auteur. His films are extraordinarily coherent, even when the, the genre shifts, the style, the approach, and these mannerisms that his main characters have are, are really extraordinarily consistent. If people are interested in reading more of your work uh, related to Melville, where's the best place to get it? Uh, I've published variously on him. Um, there's, a, there's a book, uh, 24 Frames, on French cinema. I have a chapter on uh, Melville in there. I'm actually working on a book right now. My next book is going to be on this period of when French cinema became French. It's called A Liberated Cinema, and I'm, I'm writing this at the moment, and, and Melville is obviously a, a key figure in that particular drama. Um, I've published on him in, in uh, a number of journals, the Journal of Film and Video, and you can find these articles collected. I have a, a page on academia.edu. If you, if you search keywords there, you'll find my work on uh, Le Samurai and uh, Le Cercle Rouge and various accounts I've given on uh, Silence de la Mer as well. But uh, Melville has often comes back into, into my work. I sort of come back, find myself returning to him over and over again. He's such a catalytic figure in French cinema, I think. And if people want to keep up with you and your writing and your work, where's the best place to do that? Uh, well, the website I mentioned, I just co-edited a book with my colleague Charlie Michael called Directory of World Cinema France. My book on contemporary French cinema is out. It's called Brutal Intimacy, Analyzing Contemporary French Cinema. Uh, I talk in part in that film about... Uh, the, uh, the Merine, the uh, Vincent Cassell crime films, is one of my chapters in that, in that book. So again, the shadow of Melville always looms large. So uh, I also just published a book on Irreversible, a monograph on that film. And, and, and funnily enough, it might be a, a strange connection to make, but Gaspar Noé has also talked about Melville in a couple of interviews, another very cine-literate director, uh, and a film about acts of crime and uh, extreme states of, of criminality, you might say a very, very distant, rather mutated echo of Melville there as well. So he is always a, a background player or a, or a lead role in, in, in the work I've been writing over the last few years. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It's, it's, it's great. Always a pleasure to talk about Melville. I hope this leads more of your listeners to discover the films. They're always, always very rich and rewarding, I think. 
Thank you to Professor Tim Palmer for taking the time. You can learn more about his writing on our website, projection-booth.com. We're back and we're talking about the samurai and ghost dog, the way of the samurai. And speaking of, let's get into that second film. We got a really big problem here, Louis. Seems like you're directly responsible for it. What we need to do is eliminate the scumbag, Whack Frank. This killer needs to be neutralized. In the words of the ancients, matters of great concern should be treated lightly. Matters of small concern should be treated seriously. Louis, now is the time to tell us everything you know about this mysterious weirdo. Ghost dog, power and quality. Always see everything, your brother. He calls himself Ghost Dog. What? Ghost Dog. Ghost Dog? He said Ghost Dog! That's right, it's Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, 1999 film from director-writer Jim Jarmusch, tells the tale of a young black man who works as a hitman for an Italian-American mobster, but uh, he does it a bit different. He communicates through an old form of messaging, he likes to get paid on the first day of autumn, and lives by the samurai code. The film stars Forrest Whitaker as Ghost Dog, and a bunch of New York City Italian-American character actors you've probably seen in many Scorsese films and other places over the years, including the great Henry Silva, is the head of the crime family. So, Peter, what did you think of Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai? When did you see it the first time, and what did you think? I'm old enough to have seen it as an adult on its initial release, and uh, did not see it again until just this week, but I do remember seeing it on the big screen, just the, not overwhelming, but the very strong sensory impressions, the music, and that blue, blue sky. So again, in as with the previous, as with Le Samurai, it's it's just it's an appeal to the senses rather than to the intellect, at least at the start. And the intellect does come in in a big way later. As for you, Mr. White, I saw this one at the Toronto International Film Festival back in '99, and I gotta say, I was not impressed the first time I saw it. I just did not like it very much. I I felt very offended by some of the nods that it was doing to things like uh, Branded to Kill and um, some of the stuff from Le Samurai. And I was just like, man, this this just isn't doing it for me. And sometimes I have something against Forrest Whitaker. I guess it was after I saw uh, Species, and he was just one of the most terrible... Well, that whole movie is terrible, but his character as the most obvious psychic in the world, you know, like seeing someone trash a room and he's like... I get the feeling you're upset. You know, it's just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, know what the, you know what the alternate, you know what the alternate title of that film was, right? What's that? Rhymes with species. Mm, <laughs> nice. Uh, seeing it again this week, I really kind of got more of what Jarmusch was doing. I tend to like older Jarmusch, I think, but I did read the um, whole big chapter about it from uh, Julian Rice's book, The Jarmusch Way, and that made me appreciate it a little bit more as well. It really helped crystallize some of the, the, the way that the film was put together, so I started to like it a little bit more. Still not crazy about it, but I'm tolerating it tonight. 
I have a bit of a history with this movie. This was one that played at the theater when I was working there. So it was played at the main art when I was working there in 99 and 2000. And I saw it there. But what was interesting was this was in the director's fortnight at Cannes 99 when I was in Cannes in 99 and actually ran into Forrest Whitaker in the uh, hallway of a hotel. I was going somewhere, and he just happened to be walking towards me. And I was like, oh, hey, how you doing? And uh, spent a few minutes talking to him about the film. And I didn't get a chance to see it during the director's fortnight when he was there with Jarmusch, which, uh, those who don't know, uh, Ken has two, at least at the time, I don't know if they have other uh, competitions, but um, they would have the main films at the Palais, and then they would have the director's fortnight, which were usually smaller independent films. And that was the section that this one was in. So... Um, I was already hyped for it when I saw the posters and the advertising and I got to meet him uh, there when I was just sort of walking around. And when it came out, uh, it's one of those things that we talked about before, Mike, when you work in a theater, you see it in bits. Oh, yeah. So I saw it at a tech screening like... Back in the day when you worked at a theater, sometimes they would run a tech screening. Sometimes uh, on a Wednesday or a Thursday night at like midnight, you would stay after and you'd watch the movie for free and um, just make sure that the print looked good. And if there was a problem, then you'd have to call up the distributor and get a, a new reel or something. So we did tech screening of it, I think, uh, the night before it came out. And I was really uh, taken with it. I do agree with you. It is quirky at times. And I almost feel that in a way some of the quirkiness feels like um it almost feels like Jarmusch commenting on crime film of the era because we had talked about before especially on the Reservoir Dogs episode all the Tarantino clones and sort of the hip crime films of the 90s and it almost seems like at times there's this sense of him sort of riding the line on that and putting in weirdness sort of to uh, jab you sometimes yeah, the whole thing with the cartoons and the cartoons kind of commenting on what's happening in the film and just being very self-aware when it comes to those and just that all of the gangsters watch these cartoons and that, I mean, they're very buffoonish throughout yeah. the film. Yeah, I mean, I'll get into that in a bit. I was going to say, in a way, oh, my reaction on this recent viewing of the movie was 180 degrees opposite of of Mike's because I am usually offended by nods to the you know, this pop culture being sort of this hermetically sealed universe where everything refers to to everything else, and I certainly noticed all the. Uh, the cartoonish cartoons that that Mike mentioned, but oh, I think that, and I also did not much like at the time some of the earlier Jarmusch uh, movies. But what he does here, for, for me, he redeemed himself because uh, if you remember, the the most cartoonish aspect of the movie is. You know, right near the end when Forrest Ghost Dog, Forrest Whitaker's character has invaded that castle where the gangsters are holed up. And he's, he may have killed one of the last two guys left. This, the, you know, this middle-aged Italian guy who raps all the time. He sings along to rap records. So you get this guy rapping in the shower, right? Which is cartoonish. And you remember how Forrest Whitaker's character kills him? He unscrews the pipe in the basement, sticks the, you know, and the guy's trying to 
brush his teeth. He can't do it because there's no water. He looks down the drain. Forrest Whitaker sticks his gun up the drain and shoots him, which is exactly what you'd seen in, a, I think, a Beagle Brothers cartoon just before that. Okay, clumsy illusion, fine. But do you remember what, remember all those interpolated quotes that purport to be from Japanese texts? Do you remember what the one says that appears immediately after that? It is said that what is called the spirit of an age is something to which one cannot return. That the spirit gradually dissipates is due to the world's coming to an end. For this reason, although one would like to change today's world back to the spirit of 100 years or more ago, it cannot be done. Thus, it is important to make the best out of every generation. So he's he evades the charge of being cartoonish and self-referential by saying, hey, that's the way things are done now. What can you do? <laughs> and I just, yeah, I just wish that all the Tarantinos of the world would be that good-humored about their their aping and their their cultural references. It was a wonderful moment for me. So I, I now I want to go out and rent, buy, stream a bunch of Jarmusch's old stuff because I love that. All right. Well, let's get into the plot a bit. So the first image we get is of the bird, the view of the city, the uh, the hip hop score comes up, and into the pigeon coop on top of the roof of this you know standard you know sort of building in the middle of nowhere in New York, and uh, we push in and we see Ghost Dog in this little shack of an apartment, and he's reading a book, the Samurai Code book, Hagukare, and there's this thing on meditations of death basically uh we come to learn as you just talked about there peter um this being all of these meditations out of this book that supposedly the samurai is supposed to live by it's sort of these rules for how to conduct yourself in all affairs from uh, great and small and you know and and by doing so you basically become the best warrior you can and this is sort of your your method for living is what we get the way the samurai is found in death meditation on inevitable death should be performed daily every day when one's body and mind are at peace one should meditate upon being ripped apart by arrows rifles spears and swords being carried away by surging waves being thrown into the midst of a great fire being struck by lightning being shaken to death by a great earthquake falling from thousand-foot cliffs, dying of disease, or committing seppuku at the death of one's master. And every day, without fail, one should consider himself as dead. This is a substance of the way of the samurai. Yeah, and I like these quotes throughout here, and they definitely... Trying to find how the quotes relate to the next scene is kind of a, a nice little game as we're we're playing as as the movie rolls on to your point peter the whole idea of like things changing and all this i mean the the way that we see these gangsters and it took me probably three or four viewings before i realized that a couple of the gangsters houses are for sale and we're definitely seeing the mob on the skids and the whole idea of the you know the way of the samurai and this ancient you know time it's interesting to see the way that the i think the most telling line in the movie is them talking about how 
ghost dog is taking people out in the old way and you know people are going out in a blaze of glory which is really kind of the right way for them to go because otherwise it's like you know the freaking irs is going to be the death of these guys well i hadn't noticed that but it makes a lot of sense it makes me think of of the scene where they're all meeting in the social club and the landlord bursts in and demands the rent so you know these guys can't even keep up the rent payments there's actually two scenes like that. The first one, before we even know who those guys are, who Louie is and who Sonny is, they're out in front of the Chinese restaurant and the owner and the Sonny character are talking and he goes, I'll get you the rent. I'll get it to you this week. And that's it. It's a short little scene. And then there's a similar one later. So you get the feeling that these guys are on the skids. And, and there's these layers of this in terms of like like for me there's so much stuff in here about how these tribes in a way be it black folks be it um the the italian americans or even codes that you live by be it the code of the mob the code of the samurai um all of these things are crumbling they don't work anymore and and i i got this in a way where he um it became kind of self evident to me where in in the beginning he's he's reading the book we see these you know on screen text and voiceovers and then he steals the car and he's driving into the city and he's driving through the ghetto you know through his neighborhood into the city and we see all of this sort of despair we see all of these people around him in his neighborhood and in a way, you, he, I, I think Jarmusch is trying to tell us through the visuals that if you lived here, you too would understand why he would be attracted to this code. That it's a way to sort of elevate yourself beyond this place. And there's a similar scene where he's in um, the park later. And there's a bunch of guys at a park bench, and they've got a boombox, and they're rapping. And although he's dressed like them, he is not them. He is not of them. And it's like he is he is from that place, but he is not of that place. And there's this feeling that even in the outside world in which he, he lives, he's, he's a step off from everyone else. And there's very few people that either see him or understand him. And the only people that he, react, he interacts with are a little girl and the guy who runs the ice cream truck who doesn't speak English and he doesn't understand French. Which I love. Yes, those guys, they're not just rapping, those four guys, they're drinking, too. So you know that in the, in the real world, they'd all be passed out three hours later. So, yeah. It's funny that Ghost Dog affects this kind of uh, uh, Japanese culture thing when, you know, like looking at something like... Um, Oh God! What was that uh, Clint Eastwood mil- movie, Gran Torino, which is so much about um, race and how people identify and all this? And there's the a pretty great scene with this uh, white kid who is you know doing the whole you know black scent and everything, and it's just like I, I, so it. it I, I was almost surprised that there wasn't a group of Japanese people that uh, Ghost Dog approaches and tries to like kind of get in good with them, and they're just <laughs> like, "What the fuck are you doing?" <laughs> but, but there is, but but there are these sort of bizarro scenes of I don't want to call them magical realism, but maybe they are. I, I think if it was Jodorowsky, it would be even more elevated. But for example, um, Ghost Dog's walking down the street and he sees this guy 
with groceries and we see him from behind and he knows that this guy has just turned to follow the guy with the groceries and he's like, oh, he's going to mug him or something. And the guy with the groceries realizes someone's behind him, puts down the groceries and like does these karate kicks and lays that guy out, picks up his groceries and keeps walking. It's comical to a certain extent. Yes, very much. What you were talking about, the whole uh, walking down the street thing, I almost thought you were going to talk about that scene later on with uh, the RZA, who's like the only other black samurai who's walking around and just their kind of respectful meeting on the street and, and just the way that they pass each other. And I like that that whole scene kind of goes by without comment. And you just kind of understand, like, these are two guys who are on that same level and you know just uh two ships passing kind of thing and this also of course follows an earlier scene where he walks down his own street and he sort of conveniently jogs without notice people coming out of places and there's no interaction it's like he's not even there um there is this whole level of him being a ghost him not being um among the world in that way for some reason in my head i always put this one before uh, Dead Man, uh, even though this was four years after Dead Man. But it's interesting to see some of the comparisons between Ghost Dog and Dead Man as far as, well, we have the same guy. Nobody is in Ghost Dog. Um, He's up on the roof with uh, the pigeons and everything. Stupid fucking white man. What did you say? I said stupid fucking white man. Just that whole montage of the mob guys hunting for ghost dog on the roof and looking for, you know, somebody who's taking care of pigeons on a roof. That is uh, one of the better sequences for me. So the whole idea of, well, nobody being there, the the uh, Indian guy, uh, Native American guy, and then um, just uh, the way that ghost dog is kind of affecting this Japanese persona and using, you know, the, the name and everything. And that kind of calls to mind the, when Henry Silva is talking about, you know, the, the other mob guys are like, Oh yeah, these, these black guys that call themselves all these crazy names. And then Henry Silva kind of picks up on it being more of like an Indian warrior name than anything else. And, um, then of course it gets silly again with him, you know, kind of now what the fuck is his name? Ghost dog. What? Ghost dog. Ghost dog? He said ghost dog. Yeah, he calls himself ghost dog. I don't know, a lot of these black guys today, these gangster type guys, they all got names like that they make up for themselves. Is that true? Sure. He means like the rappers. You know, the rappers, they all got names like that. Snoop Doggy Dog, Ice Cube, Q-Tip, Method Man... My favorite was always Flavor Flay from Public Enemy. He got the funky fresh fly flavor. Live lyrics from the bank of reality. I kicked the flies to maneuver technicality. Do a dope track. I love that guy. I don't know anything about that. But it makes me think about Indians. You know, they got names like uh, Red Cloud, Crazy Horse, Running Bear, Black Elk. But then there's another layer beyond that, where when they finally decide what the action's going to be, the guy who plays Sonny, the underboss, says, yo, 
this guy and that guy and, you know, Jimmy No-Nos, you know, get your people together and let's go. Right. So it's like each tribe has their own, like, shorthand of nicknames and stuff that any outside group would find ridiculous, but within their own culture, they find completely normal. Yeah, Indians, niggas, same thing. Johnny. Sonny, Mr. Margo. Go outside. Get Sammy the Snake, Joe Riggs, Big Angie. Get him in here, will you? Right away. Yeah, yeah. Jimmy Bag of Donuts is absolutely fine. <laughs> you know, there is a... Uh, the word ridiculousness has come up, and I never... When the... The two... I mean, two mobsters go up, and they're, they're climbing on top of every building where they might find an old guy keeping pigeons or someone keeping pigeons. You're going to send up two guys who must be 70 years old and can't even go up a, a flight of stairs with a, you know, what's, it should have been over the top and it was out of the, over the top, but it, 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 it was funny. It worked. It didn't detract from the experience for me. Yeah, and we forgot to mention as to why the pigeons are important. See, the pigeons are the way that Ghost Dog communicates with Louie, who is uh, his 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 master, I guess. He calls himself his retainer. Ghost Dog calls um, because there's a scene earlier in which we learn that uh, Louie did a good deed for Ghost Dog years ago in which he was getting uh, his ass kicked on the street as a young man and basically... Um, I, you saved my life, so therefore my life is indebted to you, and I'll do what you want. So then he becomes this contract killer, is, is what we get for the background. So the pigeon is the method in which he communicates and sends messages. And speaking of, I love that scene where uh, the pigeon arrives. This follows what really sets the plot off, is he has been contracted to kill a member of the family because he's messing around with... Mr. Vargo's daughter, who's Henry Silva, is the the big boss, and he goes to kill him, but inadvertently, she happens to be there and sees him. She wasn't supposed to be there, and this leads to a whole problem, because once again, this is the whole thing about living by strict codes and strict structures leading us to problems because well this is just the way things are done it's not supposed to be done this way and because it's not done that way then all of these people end up having to die <laughs> right which is totally that piano player being there wrong place wrong time from Le Samurai but it, it's kind of nice that in Ghost Dog he is just being pursued by one group of people rather than by the cops and the mob, so it kind of makes it a little bit more straightforward, and we get to spend more time with Ghost Dog and kind of experiencing his life a little bit more, learning about his code, learning about his friends, learning about his his because he has the friendship with Raymond, um, the guy who the the French ice cream seller, which is a nice you know the whole French thing going back to Les Samurai is kind of a nice thing as well. But his new friendship with Perline is kind of nice, and them connecting over books and just how important books are to ghost dog is really nice and the way that books pass from one person to another kind of like ideas but like even with you know the daughter of vargo who's played by trisha vesley i can't or vesey i can't remember her character's name at the moment uh actually i think it's is it louise or louise 
Okay, so there's because there's Louis, who's the his the guy who's uh, his master, and then there's Louise, which is kind of a nice double as well. But uh, it's like it's it's her copy of Rashomon that he ends up taking and kind of passing around, and she ends up with it, getting it back, and which also speaks to the whole idea, uh, to me anyway, of Louis having a slightly different memory of when he met Ghost Dog as Ghost Dog. So that is kind of a nice play when it comes to that. Yeah, because Rashomon is always seen uh, in the culture. I mean, being a film fan, not reading the book, not even knowing there was a book, um, I'm always reminded of the Kurosawa film in which we see the same thing from three different point of view, points of view. And, of course, that's the, that leads to a, another cute little thing that uh, that Jarmusch did. We, and this is a testament to the power of movies, that uh, we all speak of the Rashomon effect, different recollections by different people of, of the same incident. That is, and, and uh, Kurosawa based the movie on two stories by the, the early 20th century Japanese writer, Yonosuke uh, Akutagawa, and Russia, who wrote a book called Rashomon and Other Stories, and the Rashomon effect, effect has nothing to do with the story Rashomon. The, the multiple viewpoints comes in the following story, uh, in a grove. So after, after uh, Ghost Dog has given the book to uh, Perlene and she returns it to him. I liked all six different stories. Ancient Japan was a pretty weird place, I guess. But I especially like the first story, where it's um, like one story, but each person in it sees a completely different story. That was a really good one. Yabu no Naka. That's my favorite, too. Well, you know, thank you for returning it, and thank you for your comments. Now, Forrest Whitaker can't say, oh, yeah, Rashomon, that's my favorite, too. So he gives the title of the story in Japanese. He said, Yabu no Naka. Yabu no Naka, that's my favorite too, and that means in a grove, and that was the title of the story that contains the Rashomon effect, which is not Rashomon. No, it's interesting because you do think Rashomon, because the movie is Rashomon, but yeah, I guess a better title for that would have been in a grove, and I never really realized that that is not the story that gave the film its title. You should read that that first story because it would make a great horror and crime vignette anyway. But we can talk about that later. But that's a wonderful story too. But that's a nice little clever bit of a way that John Lush danced around that problem, having for the ghost dog give the title in Japanese, assuming rightly that most of the audience does not know Japanese. Yeah, it's very telling that Jarmusch comes from very much an, an English background. I think that was actually his major uh, before he got into filmmaking. And books play such an important part in this in this story, which is kind of a nice thing because you don't, you know, in movies you don't necessarily get people praising books as often as we would like and those being the connectors between characters so much like literal connectors in some cases and, but it, it was a really nice thing and then the one thing that really got me was um, when they're talking about Frankenstein and how he just immediately starts talking about the end of the book which is a little dicky uh, I guess since she hasn't read it but then that he kind of 
Ghost Dog kind of um I don't I don't think he screws up intentionally. I think he actually makes kind of a comment on the book because he ends it with a line that's not in Frankenstein. He talks about the monster Frankenstein, and we know that the monster didn't have the name Frankenstein, even though people call the monster Frankenstein, which is not necessarily kind of like Rashomon, right? Yeah. You know, it's actually in a grove. But the real monster of that story has, to me, always has been Frankenstein, Victor Frankenstein, because he was the one who gave his creature life and then promptly disowned him. And he ends up being the true monster, whereas the creature, Adam, or whatever you want to call him, he really is just kind of left out there on his own, kind of like mankind, I suppose, being left by their creator. But I, I love that kind of little, you know, just a nice little comment on the story and just the way that ghost dog you know is able to kind of slip that in and everything and you know it's that also kind of that whole idea of you know man looking for meaning and in ghost dog's case he's definitely found it through the hagakuri and by serving louis even though i don't think louis has any idea what he means to ghost dog but that's kind of also that human thing where, you know, you might find out 20 years down the road, like, oh, uh, you did this really nice thing for me and now I'm going to repay you. And it's like, well, I don't even remember ever meeting you before. What, what, when was that? <laughs> but you made well, thought, such an impression. It's almost like he signed up for a deal that he doesn't want. It's like, Louis, like, really, like, come on, why are you doing this? You know, it doesn't make any sense, you know, kind of thing. He doesn't get that. Like his whole drive, Ghost Dog's whole drive in life is to live by this code, and anything that sort of subverts that, that goes that gets him off the track of that, it like has to be done away with. Like I either ignore it or it's not a part of my life. And that's at least some the seed of potential comedy, and in some places realized, isn't it? The 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 contrast between someone that, this servant retainer who wants to serve a master and a master system. What the fuck? What do you mean, serve me? What's that all about? There's some nice, nice comedy there, I think. And then by the time you get to the halfway point in the film, this is where, uh, and we talked a bit about it already. There was the the meetings among the the mob guys where he needs to be done away with, and Louis basically gives him the warning: "Look, this is what's they're coming for you, and they're probably going to kill me too." So. Um, you know, you should probably just go. And he's like, I can't. <laughs> I'm your retainer. This is my job. This is what I've set up to do. And he's like, all right, whatever. And, <laughs> like, again, sticking to these rigid codes just leads to more and more suffering is what we find, I guess, in here. That almost makes it seem like a an elegy to a vanishing way of life. I, I mean, I'll wind up taking this movie more and more seriously the, the more I think about it. I, I mean, I found the, the the Frankenstein discussion and the way Forrest Whitaker delivers his lines in that scene just wonderfully affecting. I should add, too, that the whole... His relationship with Perlene, with, you know, a little girl, sounds like just the worst kind of sentimentality. She must have been nine years old at the time and has had a bit of a career since. And she was wonderful. And she was very good in that role. One of the better performances I've seen by a a child actor, I think. Take it a little bit further. We're talking about Frankenstein here. And I think one of the most 
striking scenes, at least in the movie, going back to the movie rather than the book, is Frankenstein with that little girl. And to me, that was very similar as far as, you know, this big hulking ghost dog and this little girl. And at least in this one, they're communicating. He doesn't end up killing her or anything. So that was good. But uh, there is that kind of element of danger, especially when it comes to, you know, older man on a park bench meeting this little girl. And there are moments in this film which could feel uncomfortable. The whole idea of Ghost Dog, this black man serving a white master, could be really bad. But it doesn't necessarily strike me as a bad thing in this film as far as it doesn't matter what color Louis is to me. It seems – and Louis doesn't know that he's this guy's master. He probably you know, had to go back home and look up the word retainer the way that the, that these guys are. They're just kind of silly and, and everything. Louis seems to be the most quote-unquote normal of them. But I think anybody who had done Ghost Dog a solid would have been – the person that he's going to repay him, you know, going to pay him back. It doesn't matter white, black, whatever. Um, so we can diffuse some of these things, which could be really hot button issues fairly easily, I hope, but I'm sure that some people just would get caught up on those things and be like, yeah, I dismissed this movie fully because it's a black man serving a white man. But to me, that again, that whole thing about him, becoming the retainer really has nothing to do with Louis per se and has everything to do with, I believe the way that Jarmusch wants us to think about the universe in which this character lives between that scene where he's young and he's getting his ass kicked on the street. The fact that it's, you know, it's, it's a slum. There doesn't seem to be much opportunity. The whole idea of him putting himself in this position to be subservient to this guy, to be the, the the contract killer and to live by this code, in a way gives him something to work at and to be motivated by because everything else around him doesn't seem to offer any opportunity. I'm going to take the movie into kind of a, a strange place. You know, we've mentioned a little bit the French ice cream seller. And I love the scene when, you know, because we've, we really know through the subtitles that he doesn't necessarily understand what Ghost Dog is saying 100%. Ghost Dog definitely doesn't understand what this guy is saying. And that whole difference of language to me really comes to a head when they're up on the roof, again, another rooftop type scene, and they look down and there's the guy building the boat. And the guy who's building the boat speaks Spanish. And this whole conversation that the three of them are kind of having, I just really appreciate that scene and then then also their commentary on this guy you know that he's crazy but he's a genius you know that that he's expressing himself through this way building a boat on a roof with no chance of it ever coming down unless the you know another flood comes i suppose but i really like that scene i was reminded of two things i was reminded of course of down by law Jarmusch's earlier film and the way that he very cleverly used Roberto Benigni in that one and just I don't think he can it's been a long time since I've seen it but I seem to remember nobody understands him he doesn't understand anybody else either so there's that and then I'm also reminded of and forgive me for going to this place but I'm reminded of Zatoichi meets the one-armed swordsman where Zatoichi is Japanese the one-armed swordsman's Chinese and so much of the movie is them not being able to understand one another and they really should be friends but communication is what 
undoes them at a few points. <laughs> so I just love that whole idea of these people are able to speak to each other. He considers this guy, this French ice cream seller, to be his best friend, even though he really never has had a conversation with him that they can understand. They definitely seem to be on that same level with one another. They certainly were. And when they were at first, like the maybe the second or third time, one of them speaks a line in his language and the other doesn't understand it but answers the question anyway. I thought maybe it's going over the top, but again, the particularly, I don't remember his name. He's, he's from the Ivory Coast, so that was his accent. It was not the accent that, that, that a, a Haitian would have, but he was so good that he, he was just able to bring that off. You had a lot of good supporting performances there. And it, one, let me throw in one more thing, maybe over analysis. We were talking earlier about, uh, not about Perlene, about the about Louise. And one point, Ghost Dog says, hey, you didn't pay me to shoot no girl. So his code, he's not going to shoot a woman. But of course, when Louis is horrified that the big boss shoots that cop, and he says, I, I didn't shoot a broad, I, I shot a cop, so he will. You know, the, the gangster, even though everybody's way of life and code is deteriorating, the gangster will, will, will violate it. The gangster will do something that Ghost Dog will not do. So there are heroes and villains here, very clear, which is not, not always, let's say, not the case in the last movie we discussed. So at this point, he decides that it's time to go to war against the mob because they violate his space by trying to kill him and basically killing all of his birds. And this is where I, I think the most direct stuff about how to be a samurai, how to work in battle, how to use these various skills of subterfuge and all of this stuff come to the fore. And then he ends up with, uh, in, you had referenced earlier, Peter, this um, thing where he goes to the the compound, the mansion out in the woods, I guess upstate New York or something, and basically guns everyone down, including the, the scene that we always get with the boss where the boss knows that the killer's coming for him. It's, it's almost that sort of like wild bunch or... Um, uh, I guess like taxi driver esque kind of ending where it's like, all right, I I knew this was going to happen. You know, I I knew I had unleashed uh, the Valkyrie to come and get me. Well, before he goes in there, he almost kills the boss uh, with a sniper rifle, but that's the scene when he I, the the whole cartoon thing and how the cartoons. It, it's it's interesting that the. The quotes from the uh, from the Hagakori kind of will introduce a scene a lot of times or comment upon a scene, and then those cartoons also comment upon the scene. So we have this ghost cartoon uh, having like almost a little laughing competition with Woody Woodpecker, and then shortly thereafter we see Ghost Dog looking at a woodpecker, this big pileated woodpecker, and he's about to kill the the boss when this uh, when his viewfinders blocked and it's a bird that's landed on the end and of course that the bird fits with the um uh, with the theme of the film and with so many of the birds that are going on not just the woodpecker not just the pigeons but you know there are definitely birds all over this film 
so that was one of the things that I got a little mad about when I saw it the first time because I was just like, oh, this is such a branded to kill kind of lift. And in branded to kill, it plays a little bit differently because it's a butterfly and this woman's associated with butterflies and everything, whereas Ghost Dog is more associated with birds. So it's almost like the bird kind of warning him or telling him, you know, do it another way. At least that's my interpretation of it. And there are a couple of, yeah, there's the, the scene that you mentioned, Pete, the, the whole idea of the shooting up the drain pipe that's right out of uh, branded kill as well. So I was just getting really kind of pissy sitting there back in 1999, watching this going, how dare he take this stuff for branded to kill. But um, I was glad to, the, the, the bird definitely plays in better and it is a nice little moment. And then we also have one of the areas of subterfuge where Ghost Dog goes up and he uh, is trying to be this real estate agent. And I like that his uh, name in that is Bob Solo, which to me kind of was a, a mixing of the two Harrison Ford characters of Bob Falfa and Han Solo. I don't know if that's what it was supposed to be, but that's kind of what I was reading into it as a as a uber nerd. So... I appreciated that. And I do like whenever you have the guy who goes in and just kills a whole bunch of people in a house, you know, it's, it's very, uh, Paul Schrader esque to me, you know, it's very, um, rolling thunder, as you said, uh, Rob, very taxi driver where it's just like, okay, finally we get the, the bloodshed I've been mm-hmm. waiting for this whole movie. But the thing is, is instead of doing the slow-mo like John Woo, he has this sort of like doubled, uh, slightly doubled in the frame sometimes of uh of the character the the other thing uh, i find funny and i wanted to bring this up because to be honest i never noticed all of the um uh connections between the cartoons and and the live action to me i saw the cartoons as more of a commentary on how we view violence and how specifically the uh, the mobsters were viewing violence where ghost dog violence was a very serious thing and it was only to be metered out when it's prescribed to be metered out and by certain sort of rules. And for them, like violence is cartoony. I, I shoot someone and, Oh, you know, it's, it's funny. And, and how the, also the cartoons also comment on the escalation of violence, especially at the very end. Um, and we'll, we'll get there in a bit, but I just want to bring this one up. Cause I remember seeing this on the Simpsons was the bit with the itchy and scratchy thing where it starts out where they keep pulling bigger weapons on each other. And then like, we see these huge guns over other on both sides of the earth. And then like everything's destroyed and it's just sort of this idea of escalation. So to me, I, I saw all the cartoons as, is just comment on first the, like I said, um, how, that tribe was viewing violence in a much more lax and fun manner as opposed to him who's taken like deadly deadly seriously well do they ever laugh at the cartoons though not really but at least like in terms of it's always them that are watching it so i guess if like japanese literature is that tribe their tribe is being informed by cartoon violence i don't know of course the gang the, the mobster's behavior itself, maybe this is just a coincidence of the English language, but it's cartoonish. Old guys puffing upstairs and you know, these old, almost blind guys just interjecting these weird, you know, rambling rants. So they are cartoons themselves. 
and it's very telling to me that the daughter, the the second generation gangster, is the one who's watching the itchy and scratchy, kind of bringing it into the present. Because the cartoons that her father and her father's generation are watching are things like Woody Woodpecker and Betty Boop. And I know that there is a few decades between some of those things, but they are definitely older cartoons where she's watching the newer stuff. Yeah, it's all 30s, 40s kind of stuff. So so there it is stylized differently. Yeah, I'm not sure where Walter Lands versus uh, Max Fleischer, no, I'm not sure where they were in the in chronology. So after he takes down basically um, all the mob except two guys and the girl again who happens to be there, and when he shoots her father in front of her, uh, he realizes that she's there and they have that moment again. And... She said, you know, you're the one who took, who I borrow, I, I lend you my book. So there's this full circle again to the beginning and the whole thing about, you know, books again and Rashomon, which then plays into the very, very end that we'll come to very soon. As he's heading back to the city in order to sort of pull off the scam, in order to get into the mansion, he had borrowed a car, stole it, um, you know, basically mug this guy for a suit that that fit him and things like that. And this, once again, comes back into the idea of bears. This comes into the idea of, uh, because the, the, the Haitian ice cream man, his friend Raymond, has this book about bears, and he's showing them about bears, and they're talking about bears, and he tells them how he reminds, Ghost Dog reminds him of a bear. And there's this scene as he's driving back of he sees these hunters, and they have a bear. It's a hell of a big bear you killed there. Yep. Rocket weighs about 300 pounds. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I, I, did, I didn't even know it was bear hunting season. What are you, a game warden? Some kind of fed or something? Nah. Nah. Nah, I was, you know, I'm just asking, you know? Just asking. Well, I'll tell you. You see, there aren't too many of these, uh, Big black fuckers left around here. So when you get a good clear shot at it, you sure as hell take it. Huh. That's why you shoot them. Because there's not that many left. I don't think I understand your question. You know, there ain't all that many colored people around here neither. Maybe you ought to get back in your fancy car and go about your own business. This ain't no ancient culture here, mister. Sometimes it is. So once again, there's this thing again about how things, the values have changed. The, the things that we care about are no longer, no longer relevant in the, in the current context. And this leads to a lot of anxiety and a lot of problems for our people that want to live by codes. And this is the first time that he's ever, as far as I remember, he's ever killed out of anything other than a contract. Yeah, and the only reason why I think that maybe he did it is because he maybe realizes that there's no one left to kill. Because he's coming back from the mansion and he's pretty much taking everybody out. 
you know, you mentioned the whole idea of the the car uh, and the stealing of the car. I want to say he does that a couple times in this, and each time again, going back to um, the samurai where you've got the theft of the car, but you have the ritual and there's definitely ritual involved with this because each time he gets into a car, I normally don't carry around a sleeve of CDs. Um, but maybe that's because I don't steal enough cars, but he's always there. He's got the music at the ready and slipping it into the CD player and then being able to kind of cruise the streets with his music, which seems to be one of the few times that he listens to music, if memory serves, but there's music on the soundtrack throughout so much of the film. And we talked about uh, the RZA being in this um, as an actor, albeit briefly, but um, he's got the the soundtrack as well, which is kind of nice. And yeah, it, it's funny that the RZA's music is so, I don't know, it, it's very serene um, a lot of times as opposed to like when the um, – when the gangster is, uh, you know, rapping uh, earlier, and he's, God, he's rapping to my least favorite song on "It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back." I used to always skip "Cold Lamping with Flavor," and just because it was just so embarrassing. And um, I don't know, I don't know how you guys feel about Flavor Flav, but. But then it plays itself again because when he goes to take out like the final two members who stayed back from the mansion, which is Sonny, the guy who talks about, you know, my favorite rapper was Flavor Flav. This is the thing that I find amazing about this. And to me, it's like, I, I think it's Jarmusch either extending the conversation or commenting in a sideway on much the same thing that Spike Lee brings up in Do the Right Thing, where you have this character who's an obvious racist. Because he's thrown around the N-word, he's talking to, you know, he's got nothing nice to say about black folks, but he knows everything about hip-hop. Yeah. And he knows, like, his favorite rapper is Flavor Flav, and he's going to, like, bust out a rhyme, and he's going to dance around the, the bathroom to, you know, Cold Lamp and with Flavor and all that stuff, because it's just like that, like I said, it's like that conversation between Mookie and Tino in you know, John Turturro's character and do the right thing where it's like, why are you always on like that? You'd like all this stuff in black culture. Why do you have no respect for black people? Bruce. <laughs> exactly. So, so, you know, after he takes them out, it just becomes this, um, going back to what you were saying in the first film about Melville and talking about Leone or something, it becomes almost like a spaghetti western. It's like high noon on the street. And I think, matter of fact, I think Ghost Dog even says, what is this, high noon? Where Louis in the street with his gun drawn, and it's like you and me in the street. And there's even like uh, church bells, I noticed, that like ring in the background when this happens to just sort of add that extra sort of like meta layer to this where it's like, am I, is this reality? Or, am I, or are you trying to make me realize I'm watching a film right now? Yeah, and again, the ritual and the whole idea of like putting everything in the the briefcase, and I like that whole thing that we're not even seeing his face in there. It's just kind of the shot of the briefcase as he's you know putting all of his important things in there and kind of preparing himself. Which, of course, is probably something we've all seen in a million other uh, gangster films, but 
you could say, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out as I speak why this worked for me, that just that the idea of the ritual, the idea that he's got the mission to the retainer to serve his retainee, that that revitalizes it. You know that it's not just a set piece because he's got a reason for doing it. And I think Jarmusch is aware all the time, every second of these meta-references and why he's doing what he's doing. So I gained a lot of respect for his intellect. We end up with the two of them on the street, and he goes for his gun. He never points it at him, and he just lets him shoot him down. And then the final thing is, here, here's this book. You should read it, and we'll talk about it. And he gives him the copy of Rashomon. And this is where Louis takes the book. He gets back in the car, and Louise is there, the woman from the other scenes where we're talking about the books. And she talks about, that's my book. And he's like, no, no, no this isn't your book. I mean, he wouldn't know anyway. Right. He wasn't there during those scenes. But anyway, uh, and then she tells him he should read the book. <laughs> right. Yeah, read it, and we'll talk about it. But also at the same time, before all this, uh, Ghost Dog had passed on to Perling his copy of the Hagakari because he was like, you know, we're, at least I'm led to the impression that he's not going to need it anymore. So, and he's, of course, felt that this code that he lived by was important. So he wants her to read it and see what it means for her. This may be one of those spoilers that uh, we ask listeners to avoid, but of course, uh, Ghost Dog's use of the gun in the last scene is will remind people of of uh, Jeff Costello's similar use of a gun in a similar scene in in The Samurai, which, I mean, if I were to ask, why did you choose these two movies? Well, that that is one obvious point of connection, I think. Or maybe something obvious planted there just for cultural studies and film studies majors to pounce on. And we'll get to that in a little bit when we'll compare uh, both of these, some of the visual and uh, thematic elements. Well, it's interesting to me, too, that we have the new generation of gangster with Louise in the car and then um, young uh, Perlene picking up the, the gun and firing it, though it's empty, in the way that the imaginary bullet kind of hits Louie and he staggers a little bit before he gets back into the car, keeps running. So it seems like between the gun and her hand, as they say in the killer, it's easy to pick up, but very hard to put down between that and the Hagakuri. It seems like she's definitely going to pick up the mantle of uh, ghost dog and carry on his good works. Yeah, the best use of what could have been a sentimental device ever in movies. Yeah. <laughs> And she seems to be as about obsessive uh, as you can get as a nine, ten-year-old with that book because her mother's trying to get her to move out of the kitchen so that because she's in the way while she's reading this thing. Yeah, that was wonderful. You thought, what the hell would a little girl be doing sitting right in that place? But that was a, another one of those scenes that made me just sit up and take notice. Why is he doing that? But it works. In the Kamigata area, they have a sort of tiered lunchbox they use for a single day when flower viewing. Upon returning, they throw them away, trampling them underfoot. The end is important in all things. 
All right, so let's go ahead, take a break, and play an interview with Sarah Piazza, author of Jim Jarmusch, Music, Words, and Noise. My name is uh, Sara Piazza. Um, I'm, I'm Italian, but I'm actually a mix, so I'm, I'm half German. And I am a um, um, writer, producer for TV mainly, and uh, I'm also a radio correspondent for Italian radio stations and, well, a whole collage of uh, activities. I'm a, a bit of an interpreter as well, uh, based in Berlin. That's how I would sum it up. As for your new book on Jim Jarmusch, can you tell me what it is and what is it you focus on? The book uh, is called Jim Jarmusch, uh, Music, Words and Noise. So this already uh, gives an idea about, uh, about the structure of the book. It is published by Reaction Books in, in London um, and it just, just came out uh, recently. And um, um, as, as is obvious from, from the title, um, my approach is an acoustic approach. So I try um, to look at the work of, of, of a filmmaker um, using this, you know, this, this uh, key <laughs> of sound. So a sort of uh, acoustic, acoustic uh, route that is, that is um, you know, leading me um, through the work of, of, of Jarmusch. Why did you decide to choose Jim Jarmusch as a person that you wanted to focus on, a filmmaker you wanted to focus on? Um, oh, to answer to this question, I mean, it, you know, it is it is always difficult to say how you know how how do ideas really um, you know come 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 to your mind? How do you how is an idea born? I don't know. I cannot really give a specific answer to this question, but. Um, there is perhaps one 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 place and one one um, you know something that actually happened <laughs> to me, which was my one of my very first uh, uh, trips to New York. This is quite a long time ago, and um, I bought a record, and this record was um, the soundtrack of Strangers in Paradise. And for, I don't know, for some reason that, that I cannot really explain, that is not rational in any way, um, this music just just kept you know, sort of haunting me. I, I include, and not only the music, also also the, the, the actual vinyl, you know, this record followed me around <laughs> wherever, wherever I would go. I've lived in different places. And um, so perhaps it is because of this music that I that I that I really admire very much that that is um, you know this string quartet music um, uh, that that was composed by John Lurie, performed by the Paradise Quartet, and and that has these Hungarian uh, Bela Bartok like atmospheres. Um, perhaps it is because of this record that I that I mm, tried to, you know, I, I started thinking about um, the, the, the acoustic sides of what usually is considered a visual uh, work um, that is a film. And so, and so that way, that sort of led me, led me to, to Jarmusch. So it was a mix of, of, you know, this unexplainable thing that happens when you just listen to something and you... You are really fascinated by it, and you know my actual experience of going to New York for the first time. 
You're talking about that film, and obviously has John Lurie in it. John Lurie did the score, but he's worked with several different, you know, composers and musicians over the years, uh, thirty plus years of uh, being a filmmaker. What do you see as sort of some commonalities sonically in terms of what he's doing from film to film? Well, this uh, this might seem a bit of a paradox, but. Um I think that he's really great at um, measuring out silence. So he's really, I think he's really good, about, given that, you know, silence actually does not, not really exist. You know, there, I mean, even in film, it's, it's not, you know, a void of anything. But um, I think that um, um, what, what Jarmusch is really good at are these moments of suspension in between that in the, in the early films, of course, are are very palpable, are there to see for everyone. And that give um, the, the music uh, um, an opportunity to really um, talk to you when the music is there. And uh, of course, you know, they're, they're, um, what, what um, it, I mean, it's kind of <laughs> difficult to sum up the whole, the whole uh, musical um, um, you know, culture even that, that Jarmusch has put into his films in a couple of sentences, it's just too broad. There are so many, so many influences. Um, you know, we talk about stack sound and Memphis. We can talk about uh, Ethio jazz, Mulatto Statke. We can talk, you know, as I said, about Bartok and European influences. Uh, we could talk about uh, the Wu-Tang Clan, uh, about, uh, you know, guitar and lute music in the more recent um, film uh, Only Lovers Left Alive um, with Josef van Wissen. So, you know, it, 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 is, just, it is just so so broad. And of course, Jarmusch um, has said in many, many interviews that music is one of his major um, inspirations. Um, when he starts working on a, on a picture, he's always listening to music all the time. And, uh, and that is, is always one of the very first um, you know, the, the very first, perhaps also really intuitive ways that he, you know, starts playing around with ideas that will then, you know, end, end up in, in, in the new film that he is working on. Among the lists that you brought up there is the the work that he had done with uh, Rizzo Wu-Tang Clan for Ghost Dog, and that's the film that we're looking at this week. And was just wondering if you could um, talk about that film specifically and what you see and what you cover in the book. Thanks for that question because that is really that is really a great you know a great opportunity to 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 talk about an idea that is in the book. Well, one of the things that were um, that were uh, great about about the way that that Jarmusch worked worked with uh, with Riza um, uh, is that. Um, the, the process was um, was really what Riza called, you know, a hip hop process. You know, it's like um, you get all these elements from me, and you can just do whatever you want with them. Cut it up, mix it as you wish. You know, don't don't uh, don't be shy. Basically, you know, do do whatever you want with with it. And this, of course, is also a process that is very connected to literature. You know, so this idea of the of the cut up of the of the collage, it is, and that is in, in, in a section of the book in which I talk about word, because one thing, um, if I might just go off track for a second, one thing about the book is that I do not really focus mainly and only 
on the on the soundtracks as such, you know. But it is it is really. Um, I mean, I've tried to 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 think about this this uh, sonic uh, acoustic uh, um, layers that that a film is made of, and of course, word is one of them. And uh, and so in in that sense, this this connection between between hip hop, you know, as a as a form that allows um, collage and and you know. Building something new out of something that is existent um, that really applies also to um, the the realm of words, which is um, a, a word that is uh, absolutely crucial and fundamental for for Jarmusch, you know, as a as a as an artist, but really, you know, as as a as a human being, you know, he he wanted to be a writer and a poet at the very beginning, and then he ended up making films, so. So, you know, it, all these things are interconnected. In terms of what we get in that score, I mean, I was trying to think back on my film experience and going to movies and watching a lot of movies. And I think it may be the first time that a hip-hop producer or a hip-hop artist has completely scored a film in that way. I can't really think of anything really before then, and some of the things that are done in there are rather interesting, because to me it speaks obviously back to what he was doing with Wu-Tang Clan, but sort of expands it out um, in in a new way, obviously, uh, for the cinema. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it's, it's really important that you mentioned the role as a producer <laughs> for Riza. Because because that is also another another side that is uh, that is so crucial, um, you know this this whole idea um, that you have this you know this sonic material and that you that you build it you know and uh, and then of course you know there is this other thing that is that is common to both to both film and and, and music which is something that that Jarmusch repeats very often but it's a you know it's it's a, might seem an obvious thing, but I think it's good to repeat it. Um, they both um, deal with time, you know, they, they just pass before you. A composer as well as a filmmaker is working with, with, with time and uh, is uh, determining exactly for how long a spectator will, will watch and listen to, to what it is that he, you know, that the director or the composer is creating. So that that is a that is a crucial point that uh, that absolutely connects um, film and music in the first place and and you know this this idea of of the cut up that is typical of of um, you know hip hop um, I think it does not contest that actually it 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 um, makes it even stronger you know this 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 idea because you're literally working with, with all these little little pieces and you're composing them in a specific amount of time that you that you that you're working with in terms of what he is doing within the context of that score how do you feel that the sound and the way that that sound is built in ghost dog i guess maybe plays against the films that came before it or maybe the things that uh, jarmish would do going forward I think, well, you know, he worked with musicians in different ways, and so um, 
in Ghost Dog, um, one one thing that that happened. Um, well, you know, Jarmusch uh, always refers to these <laughs> um, sort of obscure meetings that he had in in a I don't know in a, in a van at 3 a.m. where Reza would you know hand him over some <laughs> some some tapes. Um, and um, and Jarmusch said that at the beginning, um, the stuff that Riza gave him, um, I don't know, somehow it, it felt to Jarmusch that he, he tried too much to make a, to make a, a soundtrack. You know, um, and I think that there. I, I mean, obviously, I wasn't there. I don't. You know, <laughs> I, I I don't know for for sure. But I've, I've of course I've, I've done research and I've read this um, in several interviews. Um, at a certain point, um, Riza actually came with the exact stuff that that uh, that, Jarmusch, uh, that Jarmusch was looking for, and um, I mean that um, in that case, uh, Jarmusch was really um, producing this score because of this cut-up um, technique, perhaps more than he was doing in other works before, uh, where he would let um, the musician alone much more. I don't know if I, if I um, expressed this in a, in a clear way. Um, he did not uh, mess with any of the, of the Neil Young music, for example, for that man. Neither did he with, you know, the classic Mulato Statke Ethio Jazz songs that he was completely obsessed with <laughs> um, before um, shooting broken flowers so so perhaps uh, if you need to 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 compare it um, maybe uh, in the case of of, um, of ghost dog um, he was he was acting um, really a lot as a producer himself as well more than in other in other examples one of the things I also notice in the film is that it is a combination of what I would call um, classical sense score. And what I mean by that is like music over the top of scenes that's not sourced. And then he also has in there music where we definitely know where it's coming from. For example, when he puts a CD in and he's driving at night through the city, we get this mix between you know uh, characters playing music and reacted to the music within the scene, but also at times the sort of overscore as well. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. This this is a this is a really crucial crucial feature of um, a, a lot of the music. What you mentioned, you know, when he's driving and he's putting the music on, and I relate. I mean, in the book, or this is also very much related to the idea to the idea of movement, you know, and of this idea of creating a space. Um, that 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 is in movement somehow, you know, and um, you could say that almost all Jarmusch films are some sort of road movies, if you if you want to to, to sum it up. But um, yeah, totally. I mean, there is there is this this um, double double um, function of the music in terms of um, in terms of um, well, let's say. Background. It's a very bad word for, for this, but it, I, I'm. I don't know. I'm. I'm. I'm not so sure if if that idea of um, even a, a music that is not um, in the scene as a you know where we see the its source. Um, I do not. I do not think that that Jarmusch um, 
uses that that other type of music in a in a um, in a very conventional uh, way or in a, in a traditional way. There is one idea in the book um, of what I call um, musica deambulatoria. That that's the Italian version, but in English it would be ambulatory music. So um, and this this idea is made very clear, for example, in in Mystery Train, in which um, the 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 use of this so-called background, which you know for me is not background um, music, is in, connects exactly with movement, um, meaning that the moment that, for example, the two young Japanese kids, uh, Jun and Mitsuko, who who are you know doing their pil- pilgrimage trip, um, you know. To, to, to Memphis and they're you know they're they're walking around a lot. Well, music in in that case is really I mean you can you can watch it and it it's it's a matter of uh, you know um, split seconds. <laughs> it it in it begins and ends where the movement in the picture begins and ends. And so and so I don't know I I saw this as a as a really strong connection of the music even if. Uh, with the image, even if we don't see the source of that music. When writing the section on Ghost Dog, what was it for you that was interesting that you were able to to get from it in terms of what he was doing, in terms of sound and noise and words, as uh, your book title? Well, um, there's a there's a, a great a great thing about, uh, for example, about word um, in Ghost Dog. And um, well, there is a there is a, a section in, in a whole section about word in the book, and there is one little little you know sub chapter that I that I called faces and names, and um, I you know I mean there is there is this really really how could you say obsession perhaps that that Jarmusch has with names with family names, and there is a great part in the in in Ghost Dog. Where, where there is this whole scene where the Italian, um, almost uh, decrepit uh, mafiosi are, are sitting around the table and are, and are trying you know, to figure out who this guy is, who is this ghost dog. And, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you, you know, you're very familiar uh, with that scene. And that is another example of how, for, ex- for um, sorry, I'll just edit here and then I say again, and that's another example of how music and word can connect, because uh, when, they're, uh, when they are um, trying to, to, to figure out uh, the name of this guy, like, what, what type of name is this ghost dog, then um, one of the mafiosi uh, confirms this fact, saying, yeah, you know, it's like the rappers, they, they all have these names, and, uh, and then he mentions a few, you know, famous ones, uh, Snoop Doggy Dog, Flavor Flav from Public Enemy and stuff. So, so there is a there is a there is a constant um, pun on, on on words and names. And I think in Ghost Dog, this this really you know this really worked very well. And um, the the maybe the bottom line of it is a, is this idea of 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 the of the big melting pot. You know where all these there are all these influences and. Uh, um, let's say that you know in Jarmusch's melting pot, basically there is a lot of a lot of space for everything, and and you know there's no no such thing as as, as high culture, low culture. You know everything can 
swim in this <laughs> this melting pot at the same time. And the names, especially, you know, the names in Ghost Dog, they, they have a really, um, they give an opportunity, you know, to, to jump from the rappers to the Native Americans to Italian mafiosi. And uh, I don't know, perhaps you even you even could play that, that little that little scene in the show, because I think that's really, that's really funny as well. When I look at sort of um, the structure of the plot, the dialogue, the characters, is at times it seems to be about these different, I guess, maybe tribes or maybe different groups of people at different ages and how these various groups are sort of, you know, uh, relating and then rubbing up against each other in some way. I mean, as you talked about, you have the the elderly Italian mobsters, you have Ghost Dog, and then you have his relationship to the little girl, and then you also have, I believe he's Haitian, um, the man with the ice cream truck, who him and Ghost Dog don't speak the same language, but they seem to connect in some way, and that I also find sort of fascinating as well. So it's sort of these different groups that sometimes they can connect and sometimes they can't. It just depends on, you know, sort of, I guess, where they are in their own place in their own time. Absolutely. I mean, and it's great that you bring up this idea of, you know, the, the, the two best friends um, that do not speak the same language and still can <laughs> communicate very well with each other. And, uh, and of course, there is a whole section also in the book that is about, about this, interest of, uh, this interest of Jarmusch for, for foreign language. And, uh, and, and so this, this um, amazing thing that happens between, uh, you know, the Haitian ice cream vendor and, and ghost dog um, is that they not only um, are, are best friends and, speak, and do not speak the same language, uh, French and English, sometimes they seem to know what the next one is going to say before he even says that, you know. So <laughs> this is, this is um, I think it is a, it is a really um, interesting way um, in which Jarmusch, you know, managed to deal with this, with this uh, strange situation of, of the two friends who, who do not speak the same language. And I have um, a thought about this, and I, I talk about this in the book as, um, the invisible translation, you know, they are they are basically acting as if there would be an invisible interpreter there uh, for them to to you know <laughs> understand understand what they're saying. It's interesting to me because it seems to be this thing that goes through his films, as as you mentioned. Because Stranger in Paradise, you have a character who is from another country. Here you have uh, the Haitian ice cream man, and then in later films as well, there's also people who either have accents or also speak in foreign language. So where do you think that sort of interest in that comes from, or do you think it's just a product of the fact that instead of being you know, raised in the rural Midwest, he's definitely a product of New York and what everything New York happens to be in terms of that big mix of all of these people from all over the world? Oh, I don't think that is only something that relates to the to the actual city of New York. I think that it's much more than that. Um, I think that there is an um, an, an interest that goes beyond um, um, you know this. Um, that basically um, it, it is a bit difficult to explain. Um, one of one of the ideas, one of the one of the things in my book, for example, is that um, the 
the only fact even of using a lot of languages um, that are not English in his films, and some of them are neither um, translated nor subtitled. You know, this happens in some sections, for example, in Dead Man, where there are, where there are some dialogues in Maka language, and that is, you know, not, not translated and not subtitled. And so Jarmusch saw this as, a, in that specific case for him, um, he saw it as a sort of, um, of, a, of a gift for the few people who can still speak and understand these languages. So he's, a, he's absolutely aware of, um, well, the sound of words. That's, you know, how I, what I also talk about in the book quite, quite a bit. And, um, and the fact that communication happens on so many different levels and that um, this, this communication does not necessarily happen on, a, um, on the level of content. So the, the word can also be separated from, from it is, its actual content. And you can, you can listen to the sound of a word. For example, mm, there, is, there is a mystery train. Uh, you know, there is this great scene. Uh, where where the two Japanese kids are you know having sort of a fight you know they're they're in bed and and then uh, she is really upset for some stupid question that he asked and and um, this is obviously subtitled because otherwise the whole the entire uh, episode would be incomprehensible but um, you do hear the sound of of Japanese in that specific context and that really does sound like a sort of, I don't know, like some sort of machine gun attack. <laughs> and even if we do not understand exactly what the content of these words is, we definitely do get a sense of it. And, you know, Jarmusch says he, he, he used to watch Japanese films, you know, Ozu, Mitsuguchi. Um, he brought back videotapes, you know, back in the day from, from Japan, from his first trips to Japan. And he would listen, uh, I mean, he would watch this film and in original version and, and listen to Japanese without, without understanding. But, of course, you know, he did understand a lot of, a lot of what uh, the dynamics in the film and the feelings and a lot of what was going on, even, you know, without the, the, the help of the content of words. So, as for the book, for yourself, how long has the process been for you to put it together? And um, <laughs> what um, maybe what was some some big things that uh, you realized for yourself, or um, you know, gained some knowledge of that uh, maybe you didn't expect when you went into the process. Okay, that uh, that uh, sorry, I, I mean I laughed, but <laughs> this has been a very 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 long process. This uh, this book um, basically intertwined with my life a lot. And um, I obviously did not do this nonstop. I mean, I am an independent writer. I did have no backing from any, you know, university institution, you name it. So basically, I had to keep going. Um, one of the big things that I did learn from the process um, is that, I mean, patience truly is the virtue of the strong, <laughs> you know. You you sometimes you simply have to wait for something to to come come your way and then it's all of a sudden you know everything everything works again. So it's been a roller coaster for many years. Um, but um, yeah, in terms um, in more in more theoretical terms uh, about you know what what the book is about. 
Um, might seem a bit a bit banal, but um, film is really fifty um, percent image, fifty percent uh, sound, and this is something that um, is not immediately clear for a lot of a lot of people when you think of a film. Um, you know, usually people think of it in terms of images, and I do think uh, that this is not not quite true. Even in silent times, you know, sound was played a crucial, uh, crucial role. And there's a whole section in, in, in the book that is also about, um, you know, about silence and about um, the beginnings, uh, the beginnings of cinema. One thing that I that also um, sort of helped me um, through throughout this very long uh, process um, um, is is. Um, the presence in the book of so many, uh, so many voices. I call them voices because, you know, because of this um, acoustic approach, of course. But um, what they are really is, is interviews that I have been collecting for for many years. And I mean, some of the some of the more important ones um, happened in New York in back in 2003. But um, what what I decided to do is to to put these interviews in, well, they are a little bit edited, but they are basically in their full length because I wanted people to be able to hear the, the texture of the voice, try to hear that at least, even if reading. And, and I think that in order to, to do so, you, you have to give uh, some, some, some space, you know, you couldn't just pick out some quotes here and there. And uh, so these voices, I mean, obviously I spoke with Jim Jarmusch, but I also spoke with, with Amos Poe, with John Lurie, with, with Mark Rebo, with Luke Sand, with, um, I don't know, with Masatoshi Nagase in, in Tokyo. I mean, we did a Skype interview, um, obviously with the help of an interpreter, but you know, there's a Esther Balint. There, there's a, a whole collect, collection of these voices, and the reason why I mention them is that um, in order not to lose hope, you know, <laughs> after so many years of a project that that took so much uh, time and energy, there was this sort of promise that I that I made, you know, to them and to myself that the, that the book would see the light of day at some point, and um, so maybe that that also. Is not, um, you know, not just something, not just like, oh, I've got a bunch of interviews. That's nice. It it is actually a, a structural uh, part of the book, and a good reason um, why uh, the book, you know, finally uh, saw the light of day. Yeah, you obviously have been working on it as you made it sound there at least over a decade, and was wondering for yourself, uh, what did you learn in the process? about these films or ideas that you had about them, something new for you uh, over that time? Well, yeah, of course, there have been a number of these moments, you know, and, but it, you know, it's difficult to, to just uh, pin it down to just a couple. But one, one thing, for example, and, uh, and I say this really with a lot, a lot of, of course, uh, um, admiration and passion for the, the, the work of Jim Jarmusch. One of the ideas that I had, um, for example, is that um, he, you, you could also look at him as a sort of um, musician manqué, you know, someone who, who has this incredible respect for music, uh, almost religious respect for anything that, that uh, is involved in music and in musical process, that um, 
so that that you know that maybe um, he would really have wanted to be a musician and for a number of reasons of course he ended up making films maybe because film is a is an art form that includes a lot of other art forms you know and and so that gave him a broader a broader stage but yeah this idea about <clears throat> excuse me uh, this idea about the 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 musician manquet was something that that happened as a at a certain at a certain point and um and then, obviously, I mean, I mean this uh, with 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 all the, the respect. And actually, uh, you know, it is it was confirmed by the facts uh, because um, I mean he's clearly gone back to music. He's playing a lot, also live. I I was there, for example, December two thousand thirteen, when um, the, at the at the premiere of Only Lovers Left Alive um, at this great great uh, venue. In, in, in Berlin, which is the Kino Internationale on uh, Karl Marx Allee. Um, well, after that screening, um, Jarmusch played a concert at the Tresor nightclub in Berlin. And uh, he included this concert, the lineup included um, basically all the members, um, all, all the musicians that, that played on the, on the soundtrack for, for that film. And uh, and so he has definitely, you know, gone back, gone back to to the stage uh, as a musician after, of course, his experiences, um, you know, in the in the so-called downtown scene of the late 70s, early 80s, where, uh, as some people may know, um, he played with with a band that was called the Del Byzantines and uh, and that lasted just only about one year and um, and and so you know this this musical this musical um, um, I mean music has never left him and but then the actual need to to perform and to play live and to record music um, I think it has sort of been there all the time at, at some moments maybe a little bit asleep but then now it is definitely <laughs> coming back and and it's a great thing to see. That was a major moment also in my process uh, of, of, of working and research and writing and everything. When I saw that, that you know, a number of the things that I was saying, maybe they actually even made sense. <laughs> oh, you're doing fine. <laughs> For those who are interested, uh, where can they get more information and pick up your book, Jim Jarmusch, Music, Words and Noise? Um, well, um, there is obviously um, the on, <laughs> online uh, world that is uh, wide and, and, and very open. So you can just um, you can just go to Reaction Books, which is the publisher um, in in London. But for the United States, especially um, Chicago University Press, is uh, distributing the book in the U.S. So you can actually find it. In a lot of in a lot of bookstores, and I and I and I hope uh, a lot of people will will still go to a bookstore and not just uh, you know click <laughs> click a few times and get it delivered because I, I think bookstores are are absolutely important places um, and they should keep existing and uh, and also um, I have my own little website that is a bit um, um, how can I say artisanal and uh, Handmade, but um, it's um, Jim Jarmusch minus 
musicwordsandnoise.com. Um, and on that, on my little website, you can also find a lot of information and uh, links to all these uh, different um, places where you can where you can actually buy the book. And what might be nice for for the people listening, um, I have a a little collection of sound bites uh, that I have put online, and uh, so you can actually listen to the to the texture of uh, a lot of these voices that have accompanied me through 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 the process and along the way. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Sarah Piazza for taking the time. You can learn more about her work and get a copy of her new book on our website at projection-booth.com. We're back and we're talking about Le Samurai and Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. So, um, you know, we talked a little bit about some of the crossover, but let's let's really get into it. Uh, Gentlemen, Le Samurai, Ghost Dog, um, where do you see the connections? Where do you see the thematic elements and some of the visual homage? Maybe I'll leave the visual to to Mike. I mentioned the uh, well, one example in the final scenes of both movies. But um, one thing that one connection uh, I got clued into it by something that uh, Chuck Stevens wrote in a review of Le Samurai. He referred to the faux Japanese, or he referred to the movie as a French nod to the faux Japanese stoicism of Hollywood policier. Uh, So uh, I think in both, you've got directors, presumably producers too, who really, I think, do have a respect for Japanese tradition, but at the same time, they poke fun with Western obsession with Japanese tradition, and maybe that's why you ch- chose to pair these two. Well, yeah, I mean, starting off uh, the both films with quotes, and it was nice that the Ghost Dog stuff was actually a real quote. Um, I think that the the Melville quote, if it, though it's not really from you know the Book of Bushido, it works perfectly for the movie, and I think starting off both films with these quotes and kind of setting the tone for everything. And yeah, definitely the samurai is much more subtle in its approach and it's much more about the, the code than it is about Japanese culture. You know, there's no sword play going on or anything, but I think both of these films, the whole idea of living by these codes, these codes of honor and having these rituals, you know, it, it's definitely much more expanded upon in Ghost Dog, but it's there in both films so much, and I can really see Ghost Dog being uh, kind of a following in the same footsteps of Le Samurai, and especially because of the the coolness, you know, the the um, the the way that we have the in Le Samurai, I think we get a lot more of the coolness from the color scheme, from the way that we're uh, kind of held back a little bit, whereas we have a different type of coolness in Ghost Dog where it is more of the music and the attitude. And it's uh, nice that it's kind of like got a, you know, like a hip-hop coolness to it rather than this kind of more 
um, I don't know, like the piano jazz cool of Le Samurai. Yeah, I mean, the piano jazz cool kind of reminds me of things from 40s, 50s. Modern updated a little bit by 67 because at times the score is a little electronic sounding to me. It may just be the way the organ is used or processed or played or something that's in there on the score. But uh, the other elements, I mean, for me, are just about... Um, you know, ritual, the, the way the, the character goes about ritual, um, the visual nod, instead of him having this giant key ring, he's got an electronic box that he uses that enables him to get into the electronic locks and start the cars, things like that. Um, the whole thing with birds, obviously, although they're used in different ways. Mm-hmm. Well, if you want to talk birds, I mean, we really can't forget to talk about The Killer. And because to me, The Killer is kind of like a bridge for both of these films. There's, It, it really speaks to Les Samurai so much. And I don't think that Ghost Dog would have had the same attitude had not, you know, the um, Hong Kong rediscovery happened in the early 90s i mean it was happening right around the time that the killer was out but that was what 89 and it wasn't until like 92 93 where it really kind of became popular to latch on to hong kong cinema and it wasn't until the late mid to late 90s where you got a lot of influence of hong kong cinema on u.s cinema and i can definitely see ghost dog having you know some of that, and and really some of that stuff that we were talking about with Reservoir Dogs and uh, Pulp Fiction, and some of those like Tarantino clones that came after him, um, spoke a lot to the Hong Kong cinema as well. And I'm not just saying that because Reservoir Dogs was so steeped in City on Fire, but there were other elements to it. I mean, even with uh, you know the black ties and everything, and the slow motion walking towards the camera was very Better Tomorrow too. So you know, there's a lot of Chow Yun fat that was kind of worked into these films. So, but um, you know, the, with the killer, you had the fedora, which is like one of the most weird moments when you notice that he's putting on this fedora, which is very similar to Jeff's. Um, and well, both characters are even named Jeff in the films and stuff. So, but it's um, so yeah. So I see the the killer is kind of filling out this triumvirate uh, of films, but there is more clear lines between the samurai and ghost dog, whereas the killer is kind of more of a pit stop along the way. And then also, if you want to talk about another Hong Kong um, cinema connection, the obvious connection with the music where, you know, Wu-Tang Clan and RZA and all of that comes from their interest in Shaw Brothers films. So there's that that sort of plays, although not directly a visual element. Yeah, which was much more mainland China to me, uh, some of those Chapsaki films, but a lot of those were, I mean, the Shaw Brothers were definitely more HK. And it's it's not just uh, Hong, Hong Kong influence, and I'm, I'm not as steeped in that tradition as you are, but, but you could see in, in Ghost Dog some of the obvious visual things, but also the, I mean, nobody mentions Kurosawa's name, but there are these obvious allusions to uh, Kurosawa's movie, Rashomon, and we think, or North Americans, I think, think of Kurosawa as the quintessential Japanese director, I mean, by far the best-known Japanese director in the West of the second half of the 20th century, but he was, I have read, just 
just looked upon with great suspicion in Japan and regarded as a Western director. And he he made a movie based on an Ed McBain novel. So I think, I don't know how much a part of Jarmusch's attention, uh, intention this would have been, but the invocation of Kurosawa by itself brings in the question of this oscillation, this cultural influence going back and forth from the West to the East, from the West to the East. Kurosawa reads Ed McBain, makes a movie out of it, but in turn goes back and influences American movie watching uh, habits. And The Magnificent Seven, Seven Samurai, you can cite all kinds of examples. He is the quintessential back and forth East and West director. Yeah, I think that would surprise some people that he was, I won't say a trash director. You know, he's definitely not that, but he was no um uh, uzo or mitsuguchi or some of these guys where they were like the you know the a level like these guys are making japanese cinema whereas yeah kurosawa was like okay yeah and there's this other guy too where he was venerated in the west so much but he didn't necessarily get the respect that he should have gotten at least in the early part of his career i think later as he got the notice in other countries it kind of was like oh this is slightly embarrassing he's really looked at as being this great director in these other countries maybe we should kind of give him some props too well that's a repeated theme in in cultural relations between japan and and the west because i mean in addition to kurosawa what to us is the quintessential japanese art well it's these the woodblock prints of hiroshige and hokusai which were regarded as just ephemeral stuff and not with much of anything in Japan at the time these guys were doing it. And I think it was only after Western collectors discovered it oh, that this began to, to get more attention back in Japan. So there's cultural resonance out the wazoo from these movies. Any other connections that you see? Uh, I mean, obvious plot issue where someone who saw what happened with the murder uh, shouldn't have been there well yeah i won't i won't keep beating the drum for the killer but that's definitely you know the one for me that we see the most in but i'm sure there've been other you know you, wrong place wrong time kind of things especially things that kind of aped the killer or uh, you know cuz that one broke it finally that one broke into mainstream culture and for better or for worse, you know, I think more people have seen that one than Ghost Dog, and it's unfortunate that Jarmusch, you know, he's definitely known among cinephiles, but I don't think enough people know about his work and don't necessarily go back and check out some of his stuff. I mean, some of the work that he's done, especially the work that he's done with Aki Kurosaki, is just fantastic. I love, even when it comes to his uh, acting roles, when he shows up in Leningrad Cowboys Girl America, that's fantastic. And just, yeah, some of his earlier films, I really, really liked. And I don't know, I feel like maybe I was one of the few people who really liked Dead Man. I'm not sure if other people latched onto that one as much as I did, but I had a great time with it, and uh, some of the bits in Mystery Train are just freaking classic. How about you, Rob? What Jarmusch films do you like? I'm a big fan of Down by Law. I like um, Stranger in Paradise. I like all the John Lurie stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, I like 
uh, I wanted to call it broken blossoms, but uh, broken flowers. <laughs> I find his stuff, even stuff that, like, we had the conversation, uh, you know, using that old axiom that we said earlier about, I'd rather see a bad, bad Melville film. I'd rather see a bad Jarmusch film than most other filmmakers. I mean, because at least I know I'm going to see something that's interesting and filtered through this guy's head. It um, His stuff never really, to me, feels created for any specific idea of what the mainstream would want. It's all about uh, what sort of is playing out in, in his mind and what he values and wants to kind of have a conversation about and i find that um a quality quality thing for uh, someone who's an artist and someone who's a, a film goer so given what you just said where does ghost dog fit into his work since it is there's all these these, these cultural references the meta thing going on uh where does is this exceptional within his body of work I mean, I think it is a little more exceptional. I would say that there are references in his other films, like Down by Law or maybe Mystery Train or things like that. But that stuff seems to be more classical reference. Like, for example, uh, once again with the books and the classical references, I mean, in Down by Law, there's all this stuff about Walt Whitman that um, uh, Roberto Benigni keeps bringing up. Um, in other films, he's got a thing with early rock and roll reference. Yeah. So he's not somebody who usually plays in the current pop culture. He's not someone who's going to make a reference to something that's on TV right now or something that's really hip right now. Um, all of his stuff is usually older. I like that he almost always, you know, it was very appropriate that we had the uh, the, the lady who wrote about the music and everything because music is so central to his stuff and musicians. You know, the use of Lurie in these films, the use of Joe Strummer or um, uh, Tom Screaming... Waits. Tom Waits, yeah. uh, Screaming Jay Hawkins, you know, so many of his films have musicians in them, and Ghost Dog is no exception, having the RZA in there, and uh, so he definitely is very hip when it comes to that kind of stuff, which I always appreciate, and it feels like, I mean, God, some of my favorite, one of my favorite scenes of his is uh, the girl in Stranger Than Paradise walking around with I Put a Spell on You so loud on that boombox, and just her defending Screaming Jay Hawkins throughout the film is great. All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. C'était ma première nuit à Alphaville, mais il me semblait déjà qu'une longue suite de siècles l'avait précédée. Pourquoi les gens ont l'air tristes et sombres Vous posez trop de questions, Monsieur Jones. Quelque chose ne tournait pas rond dans la capitale de cette galaxie. C'est le professeur von Braun qui a organisé tout ça. Nous ne savons rien. Vous menacez la sécurité de Dalfamil. Je ne trahirai jamais les pays extérieurs. Dès que je suis avec vous, j'ai peur. Vous avez peur de quoi Les hommes de votre espèce n'existeront bientôt plus. Vous allez devenir quelque chose de pire que la mort. Vous allez devenir une légende, monsieur Lemikoshi.
That's right. Next week, November continues uh, with the funny French sounds again. That's right. Jean-Luc Godard's Alphaville. Don't miss it. Before we run, I want to thank our special guests, Professor Tim Palmer and Sarah Piazza, for taking the time. And also our special guest co-host this week, Peter Rozovsky of Detectives Without Borders. Now, this is um, a charitable group, isn't it, Detectives Without Borders? <laughs> there are no proceeds whatsoever, but if there were any proceeds, they would go to me. <laughs> it's just done, for, just done for love. There's nobody any good except me. But it is detectives, detectives beyond borders, uh, dot blogspot dot com. If anybody would care to take a look, and you've been doing this for quite a few years, Ian. Oh, this is me now. Yeah, it was uh, nine years in in September, and I'm told that most blogs do not last that long. For folks listening at home, um, I met Pete. Uh, God. I don't even remember how many years ago, but probably if it wasn't the first noir con, it might have even been Goodest Con? No, I didn't go to that, but I know that it would have been an odd number of years ago because noir con is only every an even numbered year. So it was it was one, three, five, seven or seven years ago. <laughs> and just the what you bring to the table as far as your knowledge of different detective genres from around the world is just invaluable. And the way that you bring that to people through your blog is just terrific. So I really appreciate the work that you do over there. Well, and I in turn thank you for getting me to watch these movies again, for juxtaposing them like this. And also, I thank you, if it was you, uh, for paying for the pierogies we ate after the trip to Port Richmond Books at the last Noir Con. So I owe you some beer, some pierogi, or both. Sounds good. We'll definitely, I'll definitely take you up on that next time I'm in town. All right. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks for uh, coming back to the show. We hope that you will consider going over to our website, projection-boot.com, taking the time to leave us some feedback. Go on over to iTunes, leave us a review, donate some of your hard-earned cash to our Patreon, or just say hello. Any of those things are absolutely fine. It's just a few more ways that you can help us take over the world. I guarantee you, no more music by the suckers. No more music by the suckers. No more music by the suckers. Yo, man, what do he mean by suckers, man? Yo, he only trying to put a black eye in the game. But yo, we gonna let you put a black eye in the game, boy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, boy. Ha ha. Come, Medina. Come, Medina. Rocking a beat to the strip. Yeah, boy. I got a solo, boy. That's right, play for going solo.
chocolate, strawberry, sarsaparilla. Flavors are electric. Trying to get a shocker. Did I tell you leave flavor, flavor alone, knocker? A clock on my chest. Prove I don't pass. I'm a clock rocker. Rocking with the rest. Flavor in the house, but Chuck decides. Chuck got the flavor. Flavor don't hide. P.E. crazy. Crazy P.E. Make it crazy movies for the shopping spree. You're eating dirt prison like getting dirt from the graveyard. You put gravy on it. Then you pick your teeth with tombstone chips. Gassy cover clips. Dead women hip to do the pump whip. Bones. Number love bones. Lifestyles of living dead. First you live, then you're dead. Died trying to plot what I said. Now I got a murder rap. Cause I bust a cap with flavor. Pure flavor. this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.